Season in Between is an Exit 52 production written and produced by me, Jake Luke. The information included is a byproduct of rigorous research, the sources of which you can find indexed in the show notes. Special thanks are owed to my teammates, Spencer, Eric, Brian, and Taylor, for always being there to offer up some help, some laughs, or both. This podcast is dedicated to the Baltimore sports fan, to anyone who feels stuck in the middle in life, and to the enduring memory of Steve McNair, who helped me fall in love with Ravens football in earnest. Episode four. A quarterback away. Football capital of the year closes down a glorious giant season and the greatest game ever played. The greatest game ever played was the moniker that it earned, even in the moment. It was December 28, 1958, and it was the day that the first chapter of what will become the proverbial New Testament of professional football was born. Pro football had been around in a certain form or fashion for several decades by that point, with the first ever documented example of the game being played on that level dating back to 1892. On November 12th of that year, William Pudge Heffelfinger was openly paid $500 to suit up for the Allegheny Athletic Association in an otherwise uneventful match against the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. The match played that day was in front of a crowd more akin to a small high school contest these days, and the game itself was more closely associated with the roots it had pulled from rugby and soccer. Slowly, it would evolve into something different. In the 19-teens and 20s, more prominent clubs would be established, playing in different, disparate leagues that lacked a ton of rhyme or reason compared to what we understand to be the standard today. But its profile grew, thanks partially to the development of a few recognizable star talents getting involved with it, such as multi-sport phenom Jim Thorpe. Still, it was a gradual process. Even the top players like Thorpe tended to bounce between clubs like the Canton Bulldogs and the Rock Island Independents on contractor status, playing football more as an athletic endeavor rather than a true career. Any money sent his way was likely more of a boon to support his other sporting interests like baseball or the Olympics. By the 1940s, it had begun to take more of a foothold. While baseball was still America's number one athletic export and the country's most beloved national pastime, U.S. citizens, especially following World War II, had more time on their hands and more money to spend to pursue interest in fandom and things such as pro sports. By then, the National Football League had already been founded, but wasn't quite the dominant platform on which players could ply their trade. Yet. Alongside them through the late 40s was the All-America Football Conference, or AAFC for short. The NFL had held much of its market share of pro football-interested fans since its initial founding in 1920, and as such, it refused to even acknowledge the existence of the AAFC, much less compete against it in an interleague championship as the new startup league was advocating for. Instead, the NFL waited them out, while the AAFC's owners put up a valiant but ultimately doomed fight for dominance on the pro football landscape. While they had employed some smart and disruptive ideas that gave their young league a solid four-season run, by 1949, the money spigot had dried up. But the top minds at the NFL weren't about to throw the baby out with the bathwater, noting some of the smart things the AAFC did and some of the better success stories it had produced. Mainly, it was three of the franchises that the league was interested in bringing into the fold in the NFL, three clubs who had no business refusing a chance to keep their doors open. One of which was the Cleveland Browns, led by the legendary Paul Brown, the club that had positively dominated the AAFC, winning it four times over. Part of the reason the NFL wanted no part in an interleague contest was not just fear of legitimizing the AAFC. 
It was also having their top club lose to the Browns and completely tanking their credibility as the premier organization in the sport. But for the 1950 season, the Browns would officially be welcomed into the NFL fold and would prove to be a perfect fit. Two other clubs who'd also eventually do so joined in as well, one of which was one that would wait a while to do so, the San Francisco 49ers, the other of which had their time coming soon. That was the Baltimore Colts. The Colts actually had a false start in joining the NFL, as that iteration of the club would collapse after just one season, dissolving in January of 1951 after an inaugural 1-11 year. But the powers that be within the league saw the potential of what had proven itself to be a strong supporting fan base, and two years later, in 1953, they awarded Baltimore a reboot of the franchise by sending what remained of the recently defunct Dallas Texans organization. It wasn't long before Baltimore's new young owner, Carol Rosenblum, a clothing entrepreneur born and raised in the city, would repay the faith the league had in him for the role of the franchise's new steward. After a few seasons of building the franchise, he hired Paul Brown understudy Weeb Eubank to take over as head coach, a masterstroke for several reasons. Eubank had all the charm and good nature of a fellow well-met, but strategically and tactically would prove himself to be up to the task of moving out of Brown's shadow and creating his own legacy. He also had a keen eye for talent and found a pretty good one in a former late-round draft pick from the Pittsburgh Steelers. There's no telling if Eubank knew what he had in Johnny Unitas when the construction worker and semi-pro quarterback who had quickly flamed out of the NFL in his first shot came down to Baltimore for a tryout, but it wasn't long before he found out. The two of them would go on to do great things together, including win two NFL championships and two MVPs for Unitas. The first of those two championships was in 1958, when the Colts beat the New York Giants in the first ever nationally televised high-profile NFL game. It went to an unprecedented overtime period in which Unitas coolly led his unit down the field against New York's defense in one of the first instances of modern quarterback play the world had ever seen, airing it out for record passing numbers, going no huddle, and calling plays at the line. When fullback Alan Amici scored from a yard out, America had already been hooked by a new iteration of a sport that had been relatively popular, but still somewhat on the periphery of the pro sports scene. It was effectively the big bang of the NFL universe as we know it today, and also for the pro football scene in Baltimore. Throughout much of the 1960s, the Colts chased those glories of past achievements under Don Shula, a young defensive coordinator that Rosenblum had taken a gamble on hiring to replace Eubank after results became a bit stale for a few years in a row. Shula quickly proved himself to be the talent he was billed as, but there were a few key issues that made his tenure a tumultuous one. The first was that he had a rocky relationship with Unitas, a dissonance that was no doubt a result of the two men having spent most of their professional lives as the most talented guy in any given room. Perhaps as a result of this, Shula and Rosenblum also proved a bit incongruent after a while due to the young coach's inability to make good on his promise and bring a championship back to Charm City. This reached its nadir in 1968 when the Colts finally won another NFL championship, but then had to go and further test their medal in the third installment of the Super Bowl, a new contest in which the NFL faced off against the rival AFL in a way that they had refused to against the AAFC. The NFL's fears for doing so back in the 40s proved themselves to be valid ones because the blue-blooded Colts fell to the New York Jets after entering the game as 19.5-point favorites. No one was more devastated by the loss than Rosenblum, who took it as a hit to his personal pride that his team would let him down on the big stage and embarrass him in such a way. Don Shula largely felt the brunt of it as he and Rosenblum's relationship completely deteriorated from that point on. Following a disappointing 1969 season, Shula bolted for warmer shores and took the head coaching job for the Miami Dolphins. In an ironic twist, the Colts won Super Bowl V the very next year in what would prove to be the last hurrah for an aging Unitas, much of the roster's veterans, and even Rosenblum, who saw it as a natural exit point to sell the club after years of bad results had soured its dynamic with the town's press contingent and fan base. It's a good thing the Colts were able to win Super Bowl V and get that last hurrah, because if the 1958 NFL Championship had been their coming out party as a franchise, then getting it done in 1970 was the lights coming on at 2 a.m. to signal that the party was officially over. 
Rosenblum's sale of the franchise was a unique one, a trade that he engineered with an HVAC magnate from the Chicagoland area by the name of Robert Ursay. In a tax avoidance maneuver, Ursay purchased the Los Angeles Rams and immediately traded the club and all of its assets to Rosenblum, who sent back ownership of the Baltimore Colts organization and assets. Just like that, a golden age was over and a new age had begun. As it turned out, this age wouldn't be so golden. Over the next decade, Ursay made so many blunders and bad faith moves as the owner of the Colts that it would be too hard to list them all in a podcast, at least one episode of this podcast. The long and short of it is that he began his tenure in Baltimore by trading away Johnny Unitas to the Chargers for next to nothing after a payment dispute and ended it by moving the team from out of town in the dead of night a little over a decade later in 1984. Along the way, Ursay fired a litany of qualified coaches, installed his own lackeys in positions of power, feuded with the press, and fairly bemoaned the club's poor accommodations in the dilapidated Memorial Stadium. All of those issues snowballed over the course of Ursay's disastrous decade in Baltimore, with the final one, that is, his issues with the stadium, proving to be the nail in the coffin. Unable to get approval for renovations to Memorial or to build a new facility, the embattled owner publicly flirted with other cities before finally settling on a new town to take his club to, Indianapolis. The Midwestern Hamlet was seeking to move out of the shadow of Chicago and announce itself as a destination for industry and entertainment within their geographical quadrant. A new sports franchise was the perfect way to do this in the eyes of the town fathers, and as a result, the powers that be promised Ursay a brand spanking new dome stadium for the Colts to play in, with guarantees on ticket sales promised among many other things. Meanwhile, the city and state government back in Baltimore were making every effort to prevent a move from happening. Feeling the pressure in March of 1984, they turned to the nuclear option by attempting to place eminent domain on the Colts franchise that would place it under city ownership. Before they had a chance to officially take action on it, the ball club was already gone. Under cloak and dagger, Ursay had worked with the mayor of Indianapolis and a higher-up from the Mayflower Moving Company to get the entirety of the organization packed up and moved out of their team headquarters in Owings Mills, Maryland. It was the dead of a snowy March 29th night of that year that the vans rumbled out of town onto I-70 towards Indy that the fate of a once-iconic ball club had officially been sealed. The Baltimore Colts were no more, and the town that had for many decades cheered them on through thick and thin was left to pick up the pieces. How would you rank the board specifically on the best players available? I think when you look at it, Chris, Andre Wadsworth could be the next Bruce Smith. Arizona trades down, still gets the best player on my board. Charles Woodson, dynamic, pure cornerback. Then the two quarterbacks, the cerebral quarterback in Manning, the gunslinger in Leaf. Keith Brooking, a versatile kid, can play middle linebacker, can play outside linebacker. And, of course, Curtis Ennis, very, very well-rounded running back. Out April 18th, 1998. It's draft day, and the Indianapolis Colts are faced with a very difficult choice. This is the scenario that having the first overall pick presents you with. But being in that position and having to choose between two top prospects, in this case, Peyton Manning and Ryan Leaf, is often a pretty good problem to have. More of this organization, Boomer, they're not making it public in terms of who they've decided on. They spent uh, many hours last night, very late, trying to separate these two quarterbacks, Bill Polian had told me that uh, earlier in the day they had them about a tenth of a point apart. They were very, very close. They spent most of the night separating those two. And I had probably one of the most interesting philosophical discussions about quarterbacks with Pullian that I've had in a long time. For about an hour last night, we discussed the pros and cons of these two guys. First of all, Pullian says that he's not enamored necessarily with big, strong guys, although both of these quarterbacks are six foot five. Peyton Manning, it seems to me, 
is the guy that has the most experience. And that ultimately is going to be, I think, the difference in this draft. He played the extra year, certainly, as he came back, 6'5", 230. He's got more game time experience. He prepares well. Again, the nickname, the caveman, that he's been tagged with by his teammates because he watches so much film. And when you look at all the intangibles that Bill Polian really researches and looks at in a quarterback, especially with the track record this franchise has had over the last decade or two in terms of quarterbacks, they need to make the right choice. He's not saying Boomer, but I can tell you this. In my gut, if I was playing poker with him, I think it's going to be Peyton Manning. It was a welcome change of pace for a Colts organization who hadn't exactly left their share of bad problems back in Baltimore. In the 14 seasons since moving to Indy, the Colts had exactly two playoff appearances and continued to cycle through coaches and quarterbacks at a good clip, just as Robert Ursay had become infamous for back in Charm City. But as the cantankerous old owner began to see a decline in health over the course of the 1990s and ceded more control over to his son Jim, the heir apparent to succeed him, there was no doubt that at the very least, the temperature had been taken down a bit for the better with this franchise. But that didn't lead to automatic on-field success. In fact, 1997, the first season played after Robert Ursay's death, was one of the worst in team history at 3-13. and And thus, new team owner Jimmy Ursay and his new general manager, Bill Polian, whom had just been hired over from Carolina, had their pick of the litter with the first overall pick. Sitting in front of them were two tempting choices. The first was Tennessee's Peyton Manning, the reigning 1997 Johnny Unitas Golden Arm Award winner, who was the son of former pro QB Archie Manning and the polished, statuesque profile of what a young NFL quarterback might look like at the time. In the running with him was Washington State's Ryan Leaf, the more physically talented but less poised and mature prospect than the pedigreed Manning projected to be. While it was something that warranted a conversation, it didn't necessarily seem to necessitate a long one. With the more decorated resume and off-field stability, Manning's physical shortcomings in comparison to Leaf were quickly, and correctly, brushed aside by the Colts' brass. Leading up to the draft, it remained a point of contention for some of the media, but others began to read the tea leaves which said that Manning would be the number one pick with a bullet come draft night. One of those media members was Sports Illustrated's Peter King, who published a piece that pulled six different NFL executives to get their take on who the pick should be. While some defended Leaf as a more than worthwhile second choice, their opinions were unanimous that Indianapolis should pick Manning. King quoted Tampa Bay Buccaneers executive Jerry Angelo, who made it clear that Peyton had everything that would be needed to exceed in the difficult situation of playing for a transient franchise that was quietly undergoing a succession in power and had no legacy to draw from. Quarterback is the toughest position to play in sports, to coach, to evaluate, and to play, he said. A few years ago, we studied the top 30 quarterbacks of all time. The number one trait we found was toughness. They all had it. Number two was accuracy. Number three was instincts. The last was work ethic and maturity. Peyton's got them all. He's talented, and he'll handle the inferno of going to a 3-13 and team. He's a sure player. Nailing this pick would be crucial to reversing the Colts' fortunes, which had been run ragged since Bob Ursay had taken control of the franchise. Even the uber-talented Burt Jones hadn't proven to be the savior they needed at quarterback after being the second overall pick for them in the 1973 draft back in Baltimore, and it certainly hadn't been John Elway a decade later, who refused to play for them after they picked him first in the draft. They'd essentially been forced to trade Elway to the Denver Broncos in a severely mishandled transaction that Ursay himself conducted, one of the final nails in the coffin prior to moving the team from Baltimore. In 1983, John Elway was drafted first by the Baltimore Colts. Do you remember? Baltimore selects as the first choice in the draft quarterback John Elway of Stanford. As I stand here right now playing baseball, I said I don't want to be a a jerk or anything about it. 
is that uh, we've been telling you for three months that I'm not going to play in Baltimore. And I know for a fact you've been offered three ones and a quarterback, and you turn that down. And, at this, and right now you have nothing. Of course, John Elway never took a snap for the Baltimore, then Indianapolis Colts, quarterback for the Denver Broncos, and of course, will be receiving his Super Bowl ring before opening day. The Broncos, John Elway, of quarterbacks who have started six games or more since 1983, he's the only one. What have the Colts done since then? Jeff George, Jim Harbaugh, Pierre Trudeau, Mike Onion, Pagel, Chris Chandler, Gary Hogaboom, Paul Justin, a smattering of who they've had. 20 years ago, they drafted Burt Jones in the first round, and he worked out. But Elway never became a Colt. Arch Leister was a first-round pick. They have a chance to undo a lot of negative history in the quarterback. I don't mean that Jim Harbaugh or Jeff George weren't good players, but maybe not to the degree of Peyton It's Manning. amazing how much football had changed even by the late 90s to the point that having a top-flight franchise quarterback was essentially your meal ticket. And in one fell swoop, Jim Mercer and Bill Polian had the opportunity to erase all of that sordid history by getting things right. Without belaboring the point any further, let's just say that they did. The first two teams. Right. Jimmy Ursay is going to bring the card up for the Colts here in a few seconds. Alex and Dean Spanos are here, the ownership of the Chargers, to bring their card up with the second pick. And as we speak, Jim on cue. Very exciting moment for him and the entire Colts franchise. And the question now becomes, will the RCA Dome, a.k.a. the Big Horseshoe, will that become Peyton's place? With the uh, first pick in the draft, the Indianapolis Colts select quarterback, University of Tennessee, Peyton Manning. for Peyton, his family, his saw his brothers, mom and dad, and of course Archie Manning, who excelled with a very poor team for years and years in the New Orleans Saints. The jersey's ready. And here he is, the new quarterback of the Indianapolis Colts, Peyton Manning. And I guess we must do this. Golf fans know this cheer. In Indianapolis, you can now yell, Peyton! <laughs> in the lead up to the draft, Peyton had been talked about in reverential tones as a slam dunk prospect with Hall of Fame type potential. And now that the pick was made and he was a Colt, all that was left to do was go and prove it. And prove it, he would. Success didn't come immediately for him as a volatile rookie season saw him produce big numbers from a passing standpoint, but also in the turnover category. His 28 interceptions marred the 26 touchdowns that he threw, and the Colts' 3-13 record was an indicator that liftoff may still have been a ways away for the young team. But anyone who thought that was about to learn a little something about the legend in the making that was Peyton Williams Manning. In 1999, Indy improved on their prior year record by 10 games, flipping the script from 3-13 to 13-3 in a remarkable one-year turnaround. Manning cut back on the turnovers, threw another 26 touchdowns, which wasn't a number to shake a stick at in those days, and led the Colts to AFC's second seed in just his second ever season. But whether it was Peyton's inexperience or the Colts' hubris, their road ended there, as Peyton was bested by a colleague of his who he'd crossed paths with many a time in the coming years. That colleague was Steve McNair, who led the Titans past the Colts in the 1999 divisional round in a nail-biting 19-16 victory at Indy's RCA Dome before taking down the Red Hot Jaguars in Jacksonville and finally coming up one yard short in the Super Bowl. 
For Peyton and the Colts, it was the start of an era of regular season dominance and, unfortunately for them, corresponding disappointment in the postseason. In 2000, they finished 10-6, and losing to the Dolphins in overtime in the wildcard round on the road. Their young core of Manning, running back Edgering James, and wideout Marvin Harrison was starting to come together, which only led to more pressure to perform on the big stage, pressure they had yet to stand up to. This came to a head in 2001, when the Colts finished 6-10 and and nowhere near the playoff conversation, a word that their outspoken and idiosyncratic head coach Jim Mora was disgusted to even hear uttered after a particularly deflating loss that season. We gave them the friggin' game. In my opinion, that sucked. What's that? Uh, playoffs? Don't talk about it. Playoffs? You kidding me? Playoffs? I just hope we can win a game. The infamous rant is the stuff of soundbite legend nowadays, but wasn't the least bit funny to Peyton Manning. The young quarterback met with the media ahead of the following week's game and wasn't afraid to voice his displeasure with Mora's breaking of the praise in public punishment and private code that sensible people usually live by. I'm a player, and if the coach wants to correct me and yell at me, I have absolutely no problem with that, Manning said. I can take it. I have thick skin. Everything he said in that press conference, he said the exact same thing right before that and more or less busted my chops in front of the whole team. And I can handle that. It's not fun as a leader to be called out in front of your team, but that's the way it goes, and I have to be accountable. Now, to be called out in front of the whole country where that press conference is going to replay it over and over again for the whole country? But you know what? I can handle it because I'm the player and he's the coach and that's the way it is. But if somebody asks me if that bothers me, you're damn right it bothers me. What went on in the locker room is our business. What bothers me is that what he said to us in that locker room has become the entire country's business. And I don't like that. But he's the head coach and he can say what he wants to say and I have to deal with it. I'm going about this by putting myself to work, just to work and work and try to win. But did I like it? No, not one bit. It was a big moment for the typically aw shucks, affable Manning, who allowed his own frustrations of his first ever truly lost season to boil over in front of the media. It was always known that he had the requisite fire and passion to make it as a player on the field. It was perhaps on that day that he proved he had the medal to serve as a franchise cornerstone. Ursa and Pulia noted Moore's outburst and Manning's subsequent reaction to it and fired the coach following their 6-10 finish. The drafting of Manning had been the masterstroke needed back in 1998 to vault the Colts from the basement floor and back up into relevance. But it wasn't the finishing touch that would put them in reach of the proverbial promised land. They'd still need to support Manning and the excellent offense he'd help build with a complementary defense, and to do so, they replaced Mora with a man who was almost a perfect foil to him. A soft-spoken defensive mind by the name of Tony Dungy. Dungy had been a longtime defensive coordinator before landing the head coaching job for the Buccaneers, where he helped popularize the Tampa 2 defense. Ursa and Pullian brought Dungy in to help stabilize the Colts' defense, whilst leaving Mora's high-powered attack philosophy virtually unchanged, and by that point, basically a self-driving car, which had Peyton Manning for an engine. You could do worse. But you could also do somewhat better than how Dungy started out with the Colts. He got them back to the playoffs in 0-2 as a 10-6 wild card, but a bad taste was left in everyone's mouth, as they were demolished by the Jets, 41-0 at the Meadowlands on the first weekend. Manning threw two picks in that loss that dropped him to 0-3 in the playoffs. I try to be patient, he said, but I got impatient because the more you get in the hole, the more they take you out of your game plan. So I ended up doing things I shouldn't have. The unfortunate reality of sports is that it's quite easy to become a victim of your own success in quick fashion. Now a five-year vet, the regular season success that Peyton and the Colts had enjoyed heaped mounds of playoff expectations upon them that they had miserably failed to live up to. Not helping their case was the rise of a new rival within the conference and how quickly they had reached the mountaintop in comparison. In 2001, when the Colts billowed their way to a 6-10 record amidst Jim Mora's antics, the New England Patriots began their run of a 20-year dynasty by winning their first Super Bowl with the six-round pick Tom Brady inserting himself as the perfect underdog figure to play foil to the pedigreed first overall pick that Manning had been. 
and it wouldn't be long before that rivalry went from a philosophical one due to these differences to a very real one, both on and off the field. Come on, right here. I'm going right to just run. Give it to James, straight ahead, and he didn't get there. Willie McGinnis. Patriots come up with the goal line stand 11 seconds to play and the ball goes over on down 2003 had been a banner year in Indianapolis the Colts finished 12 and 4 Peyton Manning took home his first ever MVP award in honor that he shared with new division rival Steve McNair in a split vote and most importantly the Colts finally got the playoff monkey off their backs but it was a regular season loss in week 13 to the Patriots in their own house that set an ominous tone for their biggest game in many years As you just heard, that game came down to a fourth down play at the goal line with Indy trailing by four. Rather than letting Manning air it out, they turned around and gave the ball to Edger and James, who was stuffed by Willie McGinnis to lose it right then and there. It was a key turning point in the season that led to New England earning the top seed in the AFC and leaving the otherwise high-powered Colts as the third seed. Their team was arguably much stronger than that would indicate, though, and they finally got not just one, but two playoff wins in the Manning era by dispatching Denver in the wildcard round and then taking down the Chiefs in Kansas City in a thrilling 38-31 divisional round contest. That set things up for a rematch with the Patriots, this time in a snowy AFC championship setting in Foxborough, Massachusetts. The game was a slog with turnovers throughout, as the Pats' defense, coached up by the savant Bill Belichick, clamped down on Indy's offense for series after series. As it turns out, clamped down is maybe as apt of a descriptor as there is. Manning threw four picks to New England, three to Pat's corner Ty Law, and miraculously still had the Colts in the game late in the fourth. After a critical failed third down play in which Indy was driving to tie with less than two minutes left in the game, Manning is seen furiously signaling at the ref for a holding call in which he felt tight end Marcus Pollard had been manhandled. On the next play, a fourth down stop by the Pats defense ended the game and sent the Colts home from the playoffs in disappointment yet again. But after the game was over, the Colts, more specifically their team brass, weren't about to just go quietly into the night. 2004 was another great year in Indy, with the Colts finishing 12-4 and and atop the AFC South. Regular season success was something they had become accustomed to, and for better or worse, known for at that point. But it was something else that made this year in particular very special. And Manning. On a career-low 497 passing attempts, Peyton threw for 49 touchdowns, a new league record that surpassed Dan Marino's previous high-water mark of 48 back in 1984. It was a remarkable season throwing the football, one that football outsiders called the best-ever season for a quarterback play-for-play. They earned the AFC's third seed, and on the strength of Manning's historic play, felt they had one of their best chances of a run in a while. Things league-wide were clearly changing, and in retrospect, Manning besting Marino is a touchstone in the NFL's shift towards a passing league. But there are, of course, a few caveats. While Peyton was on a Hall of Fame trajectory already, it was something that happened in the wake of the year's prior playoff loss that would put him on the path to this remarkable achievement, and all that he would go on to achieve since. But it was a key development that took place in the wake of their 03 AFC Championship loss at New England that would help facilitate it. It would become known as the Ty Law Rule, and when Colts GM Bill Polian and Titans head coach Jeff Fisher brought a few action items to the 2004 league meetings, they knowingly or otherwise were about to change the trajectory of not just the NFL, but the entire sport of football. March 31st, 2004. 
The Boston Globe's Ron Borges files the following headline. NFL will crack down on pass interference ruling following complaints from AFC and NFC title games. Borges opens his article with an anecdote of Patriots head coach Bill Belichick in a more dour mood than usual, grumbling about these rule changes that have just been enacted after a meeting with the competition committee that called out specific plays, highlighting illegal contact beyond five yards downfield that would now be made illegal, as well as the fact that there would be a harsh crackdown on pass interference, making it a point of emphasis for the upcoming 2004 season. Many of the plays called out in the meeting featured defensive players from New England, aggressively jamming receivers off the line or as they got to their break, and smothering them in one-on-one situations to prevent a completion. Belichick, in a move that would become familiar for him over the years, defaulted to a routine of righteous indignation. I don't really understand what we're trying to do, he said in Borges' piece for the Globe. We sat in there and watched all the film. All the coaches were in there. When you put the films on and they say, here's a violation, clearly it's a violation. No problem. Then they put on other films and say, this is a violation. Well, what did the guy do wrong? What do you want him to do? What is the violation? Well, he can't do this and he can't do that. You've got a referee 25 yards away trying to determine that? The guy who stands 25 yards away on the sidelines? I think Mike Pereira should explain that one to you because he obviously understands it a lot better than I do. The language in the rules hasn't changed, but something else has. I'm not really sure what that is. Every year they liberalize offensive holding. That's been liberalized for the last 20 years. There are always different points of emphasis. Well, it sounds like typical Belichick bluster when challenged on something he feels aggrieved by. His point that no language within the rulebook officially changing was indeed a valid one. What was essentially communicated to the coaches, and specifically him as the main offender, was that the league was going to enforce our already existing set of rules in a more rigid fashion. How did the league come to this conclusion? They said it was because passing had been down league-wide the last few seasons, with 200.4 passing yards per game in 2003 being the lowest league-wide total since 1992, and they were simply seeking to level the scales a bit back towards the offensive side of the ball to maintain balance. But it was thanks to the complaints and urgings of high-level representatives from the two teams the Patriots had beaten in the 03 playoffs on their way to the Super Bowl that are rumored to have officially put all of that on the NFL's radar in the first place. Those two teams were the Tennessee Titans and the Indianapolis Colts. Everyone felt that defensive backs had been allowed to get away with more things the last couple seasons, Titans head coach Jeff Fisher said at the year's league meeting. You see it on go routes where a cornerback grabs a receiver as he goes downfield. The defensive back is not supposed to materially affect the receiver's progress. If he's grabbed, he's materially affected. Comments from Bill Polion on the topic aren't readily available, but it's widely known that it was his position as an influential member of the competition committee that made this proposed rule, named for Patriots defensive back Ty Law, into a reality. Those who were in the press box for the 2003 AFC Championship game still remember the audible sound of Polian's feet slamming the floor in frustration as the ill-fated third and fourth down attempts that stalled the Colts out at the end of the game rang into the night. And it was his and Fisher's combined efforts a few months later that ensured the existing rules would be properly enforced, and the Pats' defense, as well as any other team across the league that played fast and loose on that side of the ball, would have to be finally reined in. It's hard to say now if this was the official turning point that made the NFL's product into the basketball-on-grass type sport that we watch today. Indeed, it seems we're heading there no matter what. But in terms of dominoes getting us here, the 2004 league meeting seemed to be the biggest one that fell the hardest. As Tony Dungy and Peyton Manning carpet-bombed the league the following season with unprecedented passing efficiency culminating in the touchdown record, fans and pundits alike were tangibly feeling the effects of the tie law rule and the new points of emphasis. League-wide, quarterbacks had the highest completion percentage, 59.8, and the highest passer rating, 82.8, in NFL history, led, of course, by Peyton and the torrid pace he had held throughout the season. The phenomenon was summed up by Washington Post columnist Mark Maskey, who looked back on the year with exceptional clarity. 
The Colts' complaints about some apparent defensive holding infractions that went uncalled in the final minutes of their loss at New England in last season's AFC title game were a catalyst to the offseason directive by the league's competition committee for officials to crack down on clutching and grabbing tactics by defensive backs, he wrote. And the stricter rules enforcement that resulted played a major role in this season's league-wide offensive exploits, which included quarterback Peyton Manning breaking Dan Marino's 20-year-old NFL single-season record for touchdown passes. It was one of the central storylines of this season and had its roots in the Patriots' 24-14 triumph on January 18th over the Colts in Foxborough, Massachusetts. That victory sent New England to its second Super Bowl appearance and title in three years. The trickle-down effect of that game changed the way the sport was played this season. It's an interesting thing to look back on now with the hindsight of where the sport was heading for 2023, which is to say a wide-open passing bonanza thanks to teams doing whatever they can to allocate resources that will either help their quarterback or hinder the other. Maskey's article goes on to quote former quarterback Ron Jaworski, who sounded equal parts amazed and bewildered at the fact that things had seemingly changed overnight. There's no doubt about it. It's had a tremendous effect, he said. I certainly wouldn't want to be a cornerback or a safety in this league right now. In the next five years, every single passing record in this league won't just be broken. They'll all be shattered. From the stone ages of Pudge Heffelfinger in the Allegheny Athletic Club to the start of the common era with Johnny Unitas and the 1958 championship game, the NFL appeared to be reaching its equivalent of the space age. And after breaking Marino's touchdown record, Peyton Manning was the first man on the moon. Considering how he seemed to recognize all of this in the moment, Jaworski's comments were especially prescient. But they were also made at a very interesting time and weren't all that he and many talking heads had to say on the matter. That's because they came ahead of the 2004 divisional playoff round where the Colts, who'd easily dispatched the Broncos in the wildcard round, would be returning to New England for a rematch with the Patriots almost a year to the day that they irked Bill Poley into the point of changing the game at its roots. New England were the top seed in the conference at 14-2, but entered the divisional round against the Colts in a state of weakness. Their starting cornerbacks, Tyron Poole and, of course, Ty Law, were going to miss the game with injury. It was a poetic twist that put the road underdog Colts in a difficult position. If they failed here after advocating for a different approach to the rules and not even having to face the player who had given them so much trouble in the prior year matchup, a lot of ink would be spilled about whether they were built for postseason football. To his credit, Peyton Manning thought back to his poor decision-making in that game leading to his four interceptions, rather than blaming the rule enforcement. I played like an absolute dog, no ifs and or buts about it, he said. I'd like to play better this time around, and hopefully we can get a win. When asked about Poole, Law, and others missing heading into the matchup, Dungy was also quick to avoid giving any bulletin board material. They're in disarray enough to win 14 games, he said. They've got good players and they're well coached. They're not going to be concerned about us. We came in there pretty hot last year and they shot us down. Now a two-time Super Bowl champion and hoping to repeat in 04 for a third, Tom Brady was quickly becoming one of the faces of the NFL as the quarterback position became more and more important. And a rivalry between him and Peyton Manning that stretched back to when Indy and New England were in the same division together before conference realignment was becoming more and more juicy as the two teams continue to meet in high leverage scenarios. A win here would be Manning's first in seven attempts at Foxborough and potentially reverse the growing narrative that he was nothing more than a dome quarterback and a playoff choker. But as unfair as all that may sound and how relatively untrue we know it to be today, the 2004 divisional round would do nothing to dispel that stigma for him. Manning, he didn't want to talk about the record all season long. He got the record still lamenting that for him, it didn't mean anything if this didn't lead to a Super Bowl. Everybody's saying, you know, he can't win at New England. He's never won here. What happened? Well, what happened is they just got manhandled, Jim, and it's not Peyton Manning's fault today. They, I have not seen receivers open down the field. Another good example. Right there. He has been, let's face it, there's so many people that 
Love the way he has been a spokesman for this league. In a dull affair, New England smothered Indianapolis without Tyron Poole and Ty Law, and without the benefits of the extracurricular activities on passing plays like they'd been the benefactor of before. The game ended 20-3 in their favor, with them holding Manning to just 238 yards and no touchdowns and one pick. Rather than aggressively jamming the Colts' weapons in bump and run, Belichick employed a too-high safety look throughout the game, forcing Manning to take the underneath route and go against what had worked for him all year. Even on completions, the Pats' defense, which was still stacked with the likes of Rodney Harrison, Teddy Bruschi, and Willie McGinnis, swarmed to the ball and stopped these paper-cut plays dead in their tracks. Harrison called it the best game plan he'd ever been a part of in that it frustrated the Colts to their breaking point and played away from the loss of Law and Poole. Ahead of the game, Harrison had made comments about how they were excited to get out there and play to the ball and lay some punishments on Indy's receivers. It was a pretty thinly veiled jab at Pullian and company for how they made them change their approach. But even in the face of the tie law rule and all the success Manning had had airing it out in this unprecedented record-breaking season, it still wasn't enough. As Tom Brady would march on to his third Super Bowl victory in just his fourth year as a starter, Peyton Manning would go home empty-handed for his seventh straight. Perhaps some saw this as a sign that great defense could still win out over great offense, after all that was made of the rule changes and Peyton's success. But with the benefit of hindsight, we know that wouldn't prove to be true, save for a few sparing examples over the recent years. For Peyton Manning, any sense of history, including what he'd accomplished in the regular season, as well as his now 0-7 record in Foxborough was lost on him. He simply wanted to go home. It was an excellent run, a fine year, he said. But when you finish with a loss in the playoffs, you can't be happy about it. Eventually, it will be our time, but all I can think about right now is losing this game. It was arguably the Colts' lowest point as a franchise since drafting Manning, considering the expectations they faced by that point and the crushing disappointment of coming up short yet again. While this did show how far they'd come since the dark days of bumbling Bob Ursay calling the shots, it didn't necessarily make things sting any less when they reached their nadir like this. And only making the latest playoff failure worse were the Polian complaints, which had painted a target on the Colts' back league-wide, but especially by New England. The game would change partially as a result of these complaints, and they had changed for Manning and the Colts in the 0-4 regular season. But for some reason, the Patriots had proven to be their boogeyman, and they had a long offseason ahead of them to take their medicine and contemplate a way forward. As it would happen, that way forward would be a familiar one. The 2005 Colts surged their way through the regular season in red-hot fashion, an occurrence that was becoming just about routine in Indianapolis. Also feeling familiar was the end of the season for them. The Steelers came to town in the divisional round and put it to the top-seeded 14-2 Colts for much of the game. But after some bizarre sequences late, Manning brought the score to 21-18 and it put them in field position to win it with a touchdown or tie it with a field goal down in Pittsburgh territory with less than 30 seconds to go. Vanderjet, who now must kick this 46-yard field goal to tie. And it's no good! He missed it. Not even close. Wide right. That is a shot. After the missed field goal, Manning sat hunched down on the bench by himself, toweling himself down and staring off into space. Another gangbusters regular season, another playoff opportunity, missed. A quarterback of his caliber who'd been raised from football royalty with one express purpose, to succeed at this sport, had everything he needed to validate what his entire life had been about up to that point, except for one key thing. In fact, the most important thing. 
And after years of inexplicable disappointments, an empty effort in Foxborough after the rules were ostensibly changed for his benefit, and now yet another golden opportunity slipping through his hands, it was fair for the doubt to start to seep in about Manning's ability in the clutch. Words like choker were starting to swirl up, and while they weren't uniformly true about Manning's individual performances year in and year out, the results spoke for themselves. Tom Brady was now a three-time Super Bowl champion, and the young gun in the conference in Ben Roethlisberger would go on to pick one off in just his second year in a few weeks' time. Peyton had yet to even play in the game. But as much as it hurt him in the moment, Peyton Manning's story would wind up to be true to the idea that if you hang on long enough and continue to work hard, you'll put yourself in position to achieve what you want in life. One thing about that, though, is that there's always a flip side, particularly in the cutthroat world of the NFL. That's the business end of a lesson that the Baltimore Ravens would learn, again, just one short year later. If there were any quarterbacks in the league who knew of the pain of getting close to a Super Bowl and not getting it done, especially in the face of a mountain of expectations that their preternatural gifts and early career accomplishments had slowly created, chief among them would be Steve McNair by 2006. He had always been a larger-than-life figure, one unquestionably too big for places like Mount Olive and Alcorn State, and seemingly destined to be a megastar in the world of modern gladiators that was the NFL. He won over hearts early in Houston, and managed to keep the franchise together and continue to win fans amidst the turbulent move from there to Memphis and then Nashville. In short order, he had his new home city enthralled as he led the Titans to the brink of a Super Bowl. And ever since coming up just one yard short of likely winning one, he'd been chasing that high and continuing to fall shy of it in turn. There's a certain irony to a master of the universe like McNair, one who goes and achieves just about all his career and life path have to offer, but it's that which ultimately stands in stark contrast to his lack of a championship and makes the absence of a ring on his finger even more glaring. It's the trap of expectations, and unlike Sisyphus, it's more akin to rolling a boulder up the top of a hill with ease, but being unable to push it over the top no matter how hard you try. It's hard to put a name to that phenomenon, but McNair would live with that feeling for the remainder of his life. He once compared the weight of losing to the Rams in Super Bowl 34 to all the wear and tear that had accumulated on his body over the years, of which there was, of course, a lot. The back pain, the rib pain, even the toe pain might go away someday, he said. The pain from that game will always be there, to come that far and end up a yard short. But I actually enjoy that pain. That's what gives me the fire inside to get up and keep going. While it's quite a heavy statement, it's that last part that was quintessential to the spirit of Steve McNair. He'd been beaten and battered and scattered to the wind by the franchise that he'd helped rise from the ashes. But he'd never be broken, because more than a thrower, a runner, or a signal caller, he was a competitor. And a fierce one at that. In an era when pocket-passing quarterbacks were beginning a new golden age that would take the game to new offensive heights with the help of some convenient rule changes, Steve was a throwback to someone like Ken Stabler, Burt Jones, or Joe Namath, part of a lineage of guys who were just as much an athlete as anyone on the field at a given time. And it's what made the lack of a championship to validate it all the more maddening, though the idea that one cut against the other wasn't lost on McNair either. With the physical mindset I play with, I expect to get hurt, he said. So the sense of urgency is real for me, because the window of opportunity is closing, especially for my career. This year, next year, or the year after, I have to get back there. Gotta get back to the Super Bowl, gotta get back there, and win it. Steve gave those quotes to ESPN the magazine in January of 2003. The following season, he'd go on to win his co-MVP with Peyton Manning, as well as get a playoff win in Baltimore with the Titans. But after the loss in the divisional round that season, things fell off a cliff, with his injuries finally catching up to him and things bottoming out for Tennessee over the next two years. To cap it all off was his messy divorce with the team and heading over to Baltimore to give it another go. With his quotes about feeling a sense of urgency coming back in 03, it was pretty damn clear that 2006, with a whole new franchise, was going to be the last great chance for him. 
and a great one it appeared to be indeed. After he ran off the field following the Ravens' Week 10 win in Nashville, he had to be feeling pretty good about things. Not only had he stuck it to his longtime team who had just abandoned him, he and the Ravens had put together another big road win by hook and by crook and entered the home stretch of the 06 season at 7-2. and two. It was a tremendous start, but one that was important to keep in context. In 2004, Baltimore had gotten out of the gates at 7-3 and three before hitting a skid that would drop them to 9-7 and seven and out of the playoffs entirely. This had to be on the mind of many of the members of the new guard, especially the veterans of that group like Todd Heap and Ed Reed, who had just missed out on the 2000 Super Bowl run. And it was their contemporaries in the old guard who knew that it wasn't about how you started a season or any one game, but rather how you finished it. Ray Lewis, Jonathan Ogden, Jamal Lewis, and Adelius Thomas had come out of nowhere to shock the world at the turn of the millennium, and had been feeling the pressure to replicate all of that for six years by that point. No amount of regular season success could phase them into thinking that this might be, quote, their year again, and Ray Lewis's trade request and general displeasure with Billy's coaching style loomed large over the prospect of ever getting it done with the old guard still intact, a great start to the 06 season not entirely withstanding if it didn't amount to anything. The only way they could ensure that it would was by playing out the string, and the home stretch of the 06 season would begin for them in Week 11 in a late November home game against the Atlanta Falcons. And the Ravens underway here. You got to make an effort, maybe to make a play, throwing the football here. Darius Norwood's in the game. Norwood in the backfield, fake the toss to the right. Vic looks. He'll seam it for Jenkins. Touchdown, Michael Jenkins. Got to Vic, but not in time. It's a great call by Drake. Michael Vick, along with Steve McNair, was at the forefront of breaking down the barriers that had long held African Americans back from getting opportunities at the quarterback position. His elite athleticism combined with a cannon of an arm that he possessed great touch with made him a piece with players like Steve who got it done in a multitude of different ways. On the opening scoring drive of the game, he showed that talent to them to put the Falcons up seven and nothing. But as it happened all season long, Baltimore found a way to get back into it. And this time, it was a bit more unconventional. Kane's kick will be fielded at the 20. Sam comes near sideline, 25-30. Breaks a tackle, 40-yard line, coming near sideline, across midfield. He's got room, 40, 30. One man to beat, and he's taken down at the 15-yard line. A huge return by B.J. Sam with 31 seconds left in the half, and the Ravens courtesy of a 66-yard punt return, are instantly in the red zone. Welcome back to Baltimore, BJ. We've missed you for a few weeks. A beautiful punt. Kanan crushed this one. Sends Sams all the way back to the 24-yard line, running near sideline. Trying to escape a man. Now he reverses field, goes back right side. He's across the 25. Oh, away oh. from the man. He's at the 40. He could go across midfield. 40. Has a blocker. 30. Cut back middle of the field. 20. And he's pulled down by the punter. Back at the 16. B.J. Sam's two punt returns had first gotten the Ravens into the red zone before the half, which they converted into a field goal to cut the deficit to 7-3. And then back down deep into Falcon territory for another opportunity. Once again, they take advantage. Give us to Jamal Lewis, straight ahead, touchdown Ravens! Jamal Lewis goes untouched, in for the score! As he'd done all season and for much of his Ravens career, Jamal Lewis ran with a full head of steam to give the Ravens the lead. Atlanta would tie it up at 10-10 with a field goal, but with Vic and their offense unable to muster up much else for the rest of the day, the task fell to Jamal to finish the job for Baltimore. As he did so many times for Trent Dilfer in the 2000 offense, he proved himself more than up to the task. 29 seconds left, third quarter. Tie ball game. Give us to Jamal Lewis. Right side, cuts back. He's inside the 10. Five. Touchdown, Jamal Lewis. On a beautiful cutback run to regain the lead for the Ravens. 
snap for McClure. Michael sets, pumps, now moves to his left. Got to have a play. He'll lay it up downfield. Roddy White's there. He makes the catch. Roddy White to the Baltimore 25-yard line. 34. Vic takes the snap. Rolls out to the left. Pumps one. Looking back to the right. He's wrapped up and he sacks back at the 36-yard line. Trevor Price and Jerome Sapp come up with the sack. Todd Heath in motion. Give us Jamal Lewis. Left side. He's got a hole. He's got a touchdown. Three today for Jamal. All in the second half. Oh my God. Brian Billick and the Ravens will run their record to 8-2 and two with a 24-10 win over the Atlanta Falcons this afternoon. In something of a ho-hum win, a member of the old guard and Jamal Lewis had gotten a chance to shine. One that came after a few years of injuries and legal issues that had caused some turbulence which disrupted the incredibly hot start to his career, including his 2,000-yard season in 2003. A couple of times out there, it kind of felt like old times, he said after the game. It's really not me, just the offensive line pushing guys down the field. Their defense was tired, and we kind of took advantage of that in the fourth quarter. Ho-hum or not, the win pushed Baltimore forward to an 8-2 and record and helped assert their case as a dominant force within the AFC. Given the way certain things had gone that season, such as the unrest in the locker room before the year or the mid-year firing of Jim Fossil, it stood to reason that no one needed to be convinced of that more than the Ravens themselves. The Falcons have been a solid test in that regard, but an even better one would be facing them next week. The Pittsburgh Steelers were just 4-6 and six heading into their Week 12 matchup with the Ravens, but they were a division rival and the defending Super Bowl champions to boot. Baltimore were squaring off with them at home with a chance to effectively end their season. A good team might have let that trap game get to them or squeaked out a close win in that spot. The 2006 Ravens wanted to be great. The Ravens are going to do a lot of different things defensively. You don't want to give them an opportunity for big plays. McNair to throw. Blitz fresh. He pumps. Throws to the end zone. He's got Heap wide open. Touchdown! Todd Heap! And the Ravens are on the board. Back to the yard. Give it to Lewis. Left side. Touchdown, Ravens! Three receivers left. Cedric Wilson split right. Blitz pressure. Down goes Roethlisberger. Thrilled by Bart Scott at the five-yard line. And Baltimore would build a 17-0 lead, which they held for much of the would-be statement game. You dream of a shot on a quarterback like that, Bart Scott later said of leveling Ben Roethlisberger on the play you just heard. That's probably the hardest I've ever been hit in my life, the quarterback stated after the game. He would return to try and make a go of it in the second half and had the Steelers close to potentially turning the tides. But within this statement game, the Ravens' defense had a statement of their own to make. He's hit, loose ball. He fumbles the ball to 40. It's picked up. Adamo Thomas has it at the Ravens' 40. He's going to go. 10-5. Touchdown of Dallas Thomas. And the Ravens deliver the defensive point. Knockout blow. Corey Ivey led the way in forcing the fumble and a continued deluge of fire the Ravens had released on the Steelers all day. You're always trying to disrupt the quarterback somehow, he said, having also picked up an interception in the game. I was able and fortunate enough to strip the quarterback, and AD was Johnny on the spot once again. The defensive touchdown by Adelius Thomas effectively ended the Steelers' hopes of winning it, but Baltimore's bruising unit wasn't done imposing their will. Here comes the nope. pressure. No, they don't. Roethlisberger running. He's wrapped up, and he's dropped back at the 14-yard line. The Steelers' drive dies courtesy of the Ravens' front four. Terrell Suggs with the sack. Price still on the field. Ray Lewis still on the field. Here comes Lewis on the blitz. It is an intercepted pass. Corey Ivey comes up with the interception of a screen pass at the 25-yard line, and the Ravens will take over there. 
Cole kick, and it is good. Matched over two for two for the afternoon. And now with 4.15 left to play in the ball game, the Ravens lead it 27 to nothing. As the most dominant victory the Ravens have enjoyed since the season opening shutout of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's over for the Steelers. Pittsburgh suffers its seventh loss of the season as the Ravens shut It was an absolutely dominant display, a shutout of division rivals who had the firepower to score on anyone. Ray Lewis had returned to the lineup after missing the last two weeks with injury and led the way in the grudge match that went a full 60 minutes. We had so many different places to come at them in so many different ways, Lewis said. Once we see it, we try to exploit it. At 9-2 and, and having just picked their second shutout of the season, everyone, including the Ravens themselves, had to be bought in. It's the next step, Brian Bill sparingly said. They have a Super Bowl ring, a number of them, and we can feel very good about it. Even at 9-2, and two, the veteran head coach was keenly aware to not let his team get too far ahead of themselves. It was a sound approach, especially as their next game was just three days away on Thursday night football at their division rival Bengals in Cincinnati. With Baltimore on the cusp of 10 wins and Cincinnati fighting for their seventh, a win there to complete the sweep would knock the Bengals out of the division race and give the AFC North crown to the Ravens. Despite the short turnaround, they were certainly hoping to get out of the gates quickly in their first t-shirt and hat game in several seasons. Three-yard attempt for Spoiler alert, they didn't. 18 of 21 on the year. Snap back, hold down, kick is up. And the Bengals are on the board first. Channel go out wide left, TJ wide right with an eye formation. And Palmer to throw one first down. They pick up the blitz. Nice. Rose goes up in the air. Cab Johnson takes it down at the 41 of the Ravens first down. Boy, I'll tell you, that's hang time. Because he jumped a little too early. He hung in the air. He was like a helicopter. 27-yard attempt for Shane Graham. Snap back, hold down, kick is up. And it is through. Two field goals for Shane Graham, and the Bengals have a 6 to nothing lead with four. As had happened at times that year, Baltimore's offense, led by an aging and off-injured quarterback, had trouble turning the engine over. This led to the Bengals, who were itching for revenge on the Ravens after the bitter loss in Baltimore earlier that year, taking the lead into the locker room. The beginning of the second half wouldn't warrant many good things for the Ravens either. Across the 25. Right side breaks nice. down across the 30. 35. Out to the 39-yard line. First down, Kenny Watson. Palmer shouting instructions under center. Hand off. Pitch back. Fleet Come on, Palmer Wide open, TJ at the 11. He's going into the end zone. Touchdown, TJ. Fourth and three for the Ravens from the Bengals' 11-yard line. McNair short drop, throwing left side. Oh, Knocked away by Torrey James, trying to find Mark Clayton, and the Bengals take over on down. Low snap, got it, lets it go. Hit a good driving spiral. Corey Ivey back inside his 35. Oh, no. Bengals have it! Ethan Kilmer again! He breaks out of a tackle! Ethan Kilmer will go all the way for the touchdown! They haven't signaled touchdown yet. They're bringing the ball back. It was a sluggish effort in which the Ravens showed how worn out they were on the quick turnaround following the emotional win over the Steelers. Down 13 nothing late in the game, McNair looked Derek Mason's way to try and muster something before the final whistle blew. Steps up in the pocket, throws to the end zone, looking for Mason. He's got a touchdown! Derek Mason with the touchdown! Stover, same lineup, and will go the other way to the short side. Pooch kicks it. Fair catch called for, and Kiwan Ratliff has it just inside midfield, and all the Bengals have to do is snap it twice. The Bengals will go to 7-5. and five. The Ravens drop to 9-3, and three, and the Bengals go to 4-1 and one in the division. The Bengals get it done on Thursday night, 13-7. We missed an opportunity, Bart Scott said after the game. Whenever you got an opportunity to clinch something, you don't want to have to wait to take care of your business. 
Scott was one of the more outspoken figures on the team and was quick to face the music in this instance. On the flip side of that, TJ Husmanzada was a vocal figure for the Bengals, who after an earlier loss to the Ravens had annoyed his division rivals by declaring that the Bengals were the better team. Both teams had gone in somewhat different directions since, but Husmanzada was feeling redeemed about those comments after besting Baltimore on what could have been their clinch miss. I felt we were the better team and I think we proved it tonight, he said. That being said, Baltimore is a hell of a team. They were indeed, and a 9-3 record was nothing to shake a stick at. The Bengals had just improved to 7-5, and and a Ravens division title was all but a formality with four games still remaining. It's disappointing, Derek Mason said, but we have bigger goals than just winning the division. So if our goal was to just win this division, we'd be devastated. But our goal is to win the championship. There's always an air of danger to verbalizing what you want to achieve, particularly in sports. Fans and pundits will have their own set of expectations for you as a team, regardless of what you say. But when you put yourself out there for them to glom onto, you open yourself up to immense criticism and ridicule if you don't achieve it. Winning the Super Bowl, as Mason was suggesting, was such an all-or-nothing proposition, and stating that as the outcome they wanted, while fairly obvious in a logical sense, put a heft to everything the Ravens did moving forward. With four games to go, the pressure was officially on, and whether it would be the vets of the old guard, the fresh legs of the new guard, or the steady hand of Steve McNair in combination with new play caller Brian Billick, players and coaches alike were going to need to step up to finish the job. As it happened, all of them would. In the first matchup of the quarter pole run to season's end, the Ravens traveled to Kansas City for a matchup with another solid squad in the Chiefs. This game carried some controversy into it for the Ravens as Billick opted to grant his players five days off after the Thursday night loss in Cincinnati, giving them ample time to fully recuperate from a deflating loss on a short turnaround. Those in the press took their jabs at this approach, and for a coach like Billick, who had come under fire for too often letting the tail wag the dog when it came to his star players, it surely would be a gamble if it didn't work out for them. But if it was Billick and the old guard who had the championship pedigree to carry Baltimore from a psychological perspective at times, it was the sheer talent and fresh legs of some of the members of the young new guard who led the way with their actions when words and experience weren't quite enough. Today was one of those days. After a big play by Derek Mason pushed the Ravens into Matt Stover's territory to build a 3-0 lead, quarterback Trent Green floated a ball in the direction of Ed Reed, a risky proposition when facing a defense that was proving itself to be downright historic in terms of taking the ball away. Over the middle, it is tipped and intercepted. Ed Reed has it in the fourth, 35, and he'll be knocked down there at the 34-yard line after a huge interception that will give the Ravens tremendous... The Ravens offense tacked on another field goal following the pick, making the game 6-0, but if Baltimore's defense was frustrated by the lack of touchdown support, they didn't show it. In fact, they simply continued to pin their ears back, as they had in many other similar games that year. into the fullback slot. Play action. Green has time. Now he's stripped from behind. Loose ball. Terrell Suggs knocked it out of his hands. That's a fumble. It is a loose ball. The Ravens say they have it. The Ravens do have it. Suggs starts the fumble, and he may have recovered it as well. Play action. Green to throw. Has time, looks over the middle, throws, it is intercepted at the five-yard line, and Reed comes down with the ball there, and the Ravens have stopped. After an afternoon in which they couldn't get anything going in the first half, Baltimore's offense broke things open on their end to offer up two decisive knockout blows. He's got Clayton wide open midfield, he's got it at 40, he's going all the way, 30, 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown Ravens! That's a big blow. Clayton, wide open, and McNair found him. 87-yarder was the longest of McNair's career and one of the biggest plays of Mark Clayton's otherwise underwhelming start in Baltimore. 
Coming off a rest like that, you've got to take advantage of it, McNair said of Billick's unconventional second bye week plan. I wanted my arm to be fresh, and it was. The big play through the air opened things up for their offense, and late in the game, it allowed Jamal Lewis to slam the door shut on the Chiefs. Bob Heath, in motion, give it to Lewis. Straight ahead, looking for a gap. A touchdown, Jamal Lewis, and the Ravens have just delivered the knockout punch. The game ended 20-10 after a garbage-time touchdown from the Chiefs, but after the offense had found their groove with the long touchdown to Mark Clayton, it had never been close. It was the quintessential performance of a team with a stifling defense and a complimentary offense, the exact thing the Ravens had hoped to be since 2000 and had fallen short of. Perhaps due to finding that identity again after taking over as the play caller, Brian Billick was feeling himself after the game. According to you guys, I gave them too much time off, he said. Obviously, they were well-rested. A fiery Brian Billick taking playful jabs at the press after a big win? Perhaps all really was well. With that clarity came an additional amount of context into focus. Baltimore was 10-3 with three games to play, which had them tied with the Indianapolis Colts and one game back of the San Diego Chargers, who were riding a historic season from LaDainian Tomlinson as he rushed towards the NFL single-season touchdown record and league MVP. If they slipped even once, though, Baltimore would assume the first seed in the conference by virtue of their tie-breaking win over the Chargers in Baltimore earlier that year. If they won out and got even a little bit of help, the Ravens could be the first seed in the AFC for the first time in their history as a franchise. The next step of their run towards doing so would be a win at home over another division rival in the Cleveland Browns. Back in Baltimore, the Ravens have only lost one home game this year. That came against Carolina, and that was at the end of a two-game losing streak for them. And then they've turned it around since then. They are normally, and it is playing out again this year, very tough to beat here at MIT. This would be a significant one. The division had still yet to be officially wrapped up with the Bengals hanging on by a thread, meaning that a Week 15 win would finally punch the Ravens' now long-awaited ticket back to the playoffs for the first time since 2003. The mood at M&T Bank Stadium was a jubilant one. That is, until disaster struck. In the second series of the game, Steve McNair's throwing hand was stepped on by Browns defender Andre Davis, gashing him along his palm. For a warrior like McNair who'd endured so much in the way of large-scale injuries, you'd think this wouldn't be too much to worry about. But unable to control the bleeding after having been cut in the worst possible place, it was determined that McNair's day was done. With a playoff spot on the line, Kyle Bowler had a big opportunity in front of him. Maybe not one that could salvage things for him with the Ravens, but one that could earn him a small bit of personal redemption and hope for more of a professional future after being one of the more high-profile first-round busts of the last few seasons. His limited action in 2006 had been a bit erratic. But as he would say later that day in a microcosm of his ability to compartmentalize all that had happened in his career, you can't let the little things bother you. You've got to keep grinding. But as much as McNair leaving the lineup and his young backup getting another chance to shine was a dominating story of the day, football is still a team game, and this was something that the 2006 Ravens exemplified over and over again, including directly after McNair's injury. Play action fake, Anderson back, delivers the ball, and is intercepted, Landry's got it. 45, 40, 35, 30, 25, he's to the 20, he's got blockers from behind, they got him at the 15. The one Landry's interception, ironically coming off the Ravens' 2005 sixth-rounder, quarterback Derek Anderson, now with the Browns, set Bowler up well to get off on the right foot. We know we're the best defense in the NFL, Bart Scott said. We had to go play like that. Thankfully for them, Bowler took advantage, with a little help from his old buddy, Jamal. Back into the backfield with Lewis. Here's Bowler giving. Lewis running right, steps through to the five, to the two, and spins into the end zone for a touchdown, up seven yards. And the interception thrown by Derek Anderson comes back to bury the Browns right there. And they After going down 7-3, to three, Anderson and the Browns offense quickly punted again, putting things right back in Bowler and Baltimore's hands. 
With a full field now in front of him, he rose to the occasion again, putting together an 11-play, 85-yard drive, capped off with a 9-yard touchdown pass to fullback Obi Mukhele, giving the Ravens a 14-3 lead to open the second quarter. Despite his difficult showings earlier in the year when he had his chances, Bowler maintained that he had kept the same mindset whenever he got an opportunity to show what he could do. To me, it's go time, he said after the game. I see it as a challenge. Sometimes as a backup, you feel like you kind of get lost in the mix. You go out there and you come back in and you really didn't do much. So that's kind of my philosophy. Let me do something to help contribute to this team being successful. But as much as his hot start was a pleasant surprise, there was a reason that Bowler had been relegated to the sidelines for McNair, and it wasn't a lack of talent. Rather, difficulties with decision-making. An interception and a fumbled snap that was lost to Cleveland marred his ideal start, and after managing just one field goal for the rest of the half, Derek Anderson was able to cut into the Browns' deficit just before they went to the locker room. Short drop, lob, end zone, touchdown Cleveland. Joe Jorovicius caught it over top of Evan Oglesby. Well, I guess the Ohio State guy was yeah. here. Yeah, 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 so Evan Oglesby checks in for the injured Samari roll. The Browns go right after him. And I got news for you. Unless the Ravens can get up with big points here in the final minute of the half, we're going to have a ball. Neither team was able to get much going out of the break, but it was around halfway through the third that Derek Anderson connected with wide receiver Braylon Edwards for a 14-yard touchdown to tie the game at 17-17 that Ravens fans likely began to wonder if today would indeed prove to be clinchmas. It was fair to wonder, considering the injury to McNair, and the fact that they were watching an unreliable, at best, option at quarterback piloting them on that day. But whether it was thanks to his God-given talents or his admirable attitude in the face of all that had gone wrong in his career, Kyle Bowler would prove he had one big moment in a Ravens uniform left in him on that day. 10 in a 17-17 tie. Ravens have it at their own 23. Kyle Bowler backpedals into a shotgun. Two receivers left. One of them leaves. It's heaped the tight end, making it three receivers right. Snap is back. Bowler's got it. He's going to get pressure. He fires the ball long down the right sideline. Caught! Williams got it. Angles left. 20, 15, 10, 5, dive, touchdown. Unbelievable. Well, they maxed up the protection. They kept Todd Heap in, but Bowler throws, throws the strike, and how he got behind the safeties, I don't know. 77 yards, Demetrius Williams, incredible, Cameron Wimbley almost got to Bowler, but he got the ball loose, and Sean Jones and Holly got beat by Demetrius Williams down the middle of the field, and the Ravens on one big play, that bugaboo down, third down, they end up hitting a huge... Considering the circumstances, and of course the fact that the rainbow of a pass was an absolute beauty, this may be the single best play of Bowler's Ravens career. I just wanted to put it up there nice and high for him, let him run underneath it, he said later with a smile, referring to Demetrius Williams and his blazing speed. As momentous as the play was, and as great as Kyle felt in the moment, his work wasn't done. The Ravens still led by only seven when they took over near midfield with six minutes to go in the game. In a methodical drive that burned three minutes off the clock, the erratic young gunslinger played the part of a steady-handed surgeon and put Matt Stover in position to basically ice it. An extra point here as the ball is at the 12-yard line, 22-yard field goal attempt. 3.02 to go in the game. Matt Kachula puts the ball back on the long snapper. Snap is back, placed down, Stover's kick is up, and it's good, and it's a 10-point lead. So it's all over at M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore. The final score, the Ravens 27 and the Browns 17. And with that, he'd done it. The former draft bus had one last good moment for a team that they'd come sparingly for and helped them make the playoffs in the process. 
It had been a difficult road for Bowler over the last few years. More impressive than his play was his medal amidst all this, and specifically, losing his job to McNair and how he handled it. You can be a little bit bitter because it was his job, but I'm proud of the fact that he hasn't let that happen, Ravens quarterbacks coach Rick Neuheisel said. He's worked hard to stay ready. He's taken the fact that Steve is here as a positive from the standpoint of, I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity to learn from a guy who is potentially a future Hall of Famer. His teammates were impressed as well. Derek Mason was as dyed in the wool of a Steve McNair guy as there was, but found the time to give Bowler a proverbial attaboy with the media after the game. He's played in this league long enough, he said. He has seen enough. We're all going to make a few mistakes here and there, but when it's all said and done, Kyle is going to make a play for us with his arm, or rather tucking it down and running. I'm proud of what he did today. Bowler and Brian Billick shared a pretty complicated relationship for a variety of reasons, and it would remain that way moving forward. But he was happy to see his once-star pupil have a nice moment in front of the home crowd at M&T. Everybody knows life in the NFL is very tenuous when it comes to your backup, he said. He has to be ready to play. I thought Kyle played very well today. Anyone even somewhat familiar with this story knows this was not a jumping-off point towards bigger and better things as a starting NFL quarterback for the still young Kyle Bowler. But it is a good lesson that in sports, and in life, perseverance can lead to some good things, even if the high moments are fleeting and far between. Bowler would go on to play in the NFL for five more seasons, earning a near $18 million for his efforts before retiring to California and getting involved in entrepreneurship. It would have been easy for him to quit on his career earlier, to act bitter towards Billick or Steve McNair, to take the millions that he had earned up to that point and said thanks, but no thanks. The fact that he didn't is not only a testament to the athlete's mindset that he clearly possessed, but to the fact that he probably should be remembered a bit more fondly on a human level in Baltimore. The fact that he didn't play up the part is one thing, but he took his own disappointment in the face of that and refused to fold. His quotes after spelling Steve McNair in that game, who would come back next week and lead the Ravens for the rest of the way, were pretty telling at what kind of a guy Bowler really was. You can pout, you can be selfish, he said, but I've been raised and grown up to where that doesn't get you anywhere in life. I seized it as an opportunity to go out there and learn from this guy. He's a great player and a great person. I think things happen for a reason, and hopefully it will be a blessing in disguise in the long run. With just two weeks to go in the 2006 regular season, the 11-3 Ravens were in the playoffs. Ray Lewis, who not that long ago, amidst what he thought were irreconcilable differences with Brian Billick in the front office, had requested a trade, knew exactly what even getting there meant. We're in the dance right now, he said. The dance is very simple. Anybody who gets into this dance has a chance to win the Super Bowl. If his summation sounds a bit simplified, that's because the first time that Lewis and the Ravens went to the playoffs back in 2000, they bowled their way through four opponents en route to winning a Super Bowl. And unlike that wildcard season, they now have the inside track to home field advantage in at least the first round of the playoffs and maybe with the top overall seed. A lot had changed for Brian Billick since 2000, and rather than the fire and brimstone, soundbite-happy approach he employed then, he was more measured when discussing the accomplishment with the media. Making the playoffs, that's step one, he said. Every team, when they show up at training camp, you have the same goal. It first begins with making the playoffs, and we're there. From there, they turn their sights to the rest of the AFC heavyweights and start to size up their competition for the tournament. There were some big names to be feared, and the Ravens belonged right with them in that conversation. In fact, there were other teams looking up at them, hoping they'd slip up a bit so they could assume their role near the top of the conference. One of those teams was one who they shared a lot of history with and one who would soon ignite another chapter in a very long-standing rivalry between the two organizations that went back decades. If Kyle Bowler was the story of physical potential gone to waste right from the start, then Peyton Manning by 2006 represented the fact that even potential fulfilled against mammoth expectations could only take you so far, at least as far as championships were concerned. The money, the accolades, the litany of sponsorship deals, big wins, it was all there. 
But as they say, it don't mean a thing if you ain't got the ring. For Manning, who loved the game of football more than life itself and was maniacal in his preparation because of how in love with the process he was, it's hard to tell if such a zero-sum statement would truly resonate with him. Football had always been in his life, and it had given him everything, literally from day one. His father, Archie, had had a very successful career as the quarterback of the New Orleans Saints, playing there for over a decade and making two trips to the Pro Bowl. Would Peyton say or even think deep down that his father's career should be seen as a failure because he never won a Super Bowl? Probably not. But following in that type of legacy only further complicated things for a guy who was as close to football royalty as there was in the world. Guys like Tom Brady and Ben Roethlisberger showing up on the scene and immediately winning rings didn't help his case either. In that regard, 2006 was going to be a pivotal season. The prior year, the Colts' 14-2 run being snuffed out by Pittsburgh at home as they and Roethlisberger went on to win the Super Bowl was the latest in a long line of playoff failures, to the point that some were starting to label Manning, fairly or otherwise, with the dreaded moniker of Choker. It was hard to call 2006 a do-or-die type season for Indy, as their lack of postseason success glared against their rival Patriots to the point that people's minds were largely made up about them. Indy star columnist Bob Kravitz, who never shied away from criticizing the team he covered, summed up this phenomenon in a particularly scathing rebuke of a 14-2 Colts effort one season. It's odd. For nearly a decade, the Colts have routinely exceeded the loftiest regular season expectations with no problem, he begins. But then come the playoffs, it's like they're carrying some giant, unseen burden. Suddenly, a minor flaw during the regular season becomes a throbbing Achilles heel. Suddenly, they make the kinds of mistakes they avoided all season. Suddenly, Manning, the best quarterback in the league, becomes ordinary. For a 14-2 team, this group has a surprisingly slim margin for error, which makes their accomplishments all the more remarkable and makes them strangely fragile at the same time. Similar to the Ravens and their issues with the quarterback position and how that stood out against the rest of their super roster building, the Colts' regular season success only seemed to magnify their continued shortcomings on the bigger stages. Whether we like it or not, the die gets cast over time, and only we, in the face of everything we've ever done up to that point, are capable of changing people's perceptions of us. The 2006 Colts would have their work cut out for them in that regard. They were coming off the nadir of their regular season success versus postseason failures that was 2005, and while it may seem like the perfect time, i.e. rock bottom, to go out and flip the script, NFL seasons were long, and the albatross of a negative reputation in any one regard has a way of tearing teams down sometimes. A few moves over the offseason that would prove significant were the loss of running back Edger and James to free agency and the release of kicker Mike Vanderjagt. James had been instrumental in helping the Colts' offense earn the reputation that it had as a, quote, three-headed monster, with him, Manning, and wide receiver Marvin Harrison forming a formidable trio known as the Triplets. For 06, Manning and Harrison would simply have to settle into role as twins, or whatever it might have been, with James as a replacement coming in the form of first-round rookie Joseph Adai. The explosive runner out of LSU would have his work cut out for him to get up to speed on a Manning-led offense in just a few months' time, but he did figure as a plug-and-play starter provided all that happened by week one. Moving on from Vanderjagt after his miss against the Steelers in the playoffs the prior season was a move that showcased the hard-scrabble life of an NFL kicker, as one mistake in the wrong context could doom you to a life of slim employment opportunities. If the Colts' playoff failures were following them around collectively by that point, then Vanderjagt's one miss would do the same with him on an individual level forever. For both parties, a split certainly made some sense. On the Colts' end, though, it would prove even wiser in hindsight. Adam Vinatieri, who even by that point had cemented himself as one of the most clutch kickers in league history, had become available that offseason after ending his legendary run with the New England Patriots. 
With multiple Super Bowl winning kicks to his name, as well as plenty of other high-profile ones, such as the one that he booted through the snow in the tuck rule game back in 2001, Vinatieri was just what a team who lacked some killer instinct late in high-profile games needed to bring aboard. This bore itself out to start the year in a very big way. In a regular season run that was hardly precedented even for them, the Colts began season with a pristine 9-0 record, their second year in a row doing so, making them the first team to ever do that. But even with the great start by Manning in the offense and the contributions of Adai and Vinatieri, which were significant, there was a flip side to it all which was so obvious it was essentially an elephant in their locker room. If last season, when the top-seeded Colts had been dispatched of so easily at home by the six-seeded Steelers, then anything was ripe to happen despite any and all regular season success they enjoyed. And as it would turn out, a lot of things would happen down the stretch for the team, who was used to cruising towards the top of their conference year in and year out. Back third and six, right pressure, throws it out, nearly intercepted. intercepted. It was intercepted. And picked up and run left by Burnett. Through the 30, he's still going. Down the sideline, he comes, and Burnett across the 10, and Burnett to the pylon. Touchdown, Cowboys! New life for Dallas out of the eye. Barber, the tailback, handoff. Barber starts left, slips, breaks through, touchdown, Marion Barber. Two seconds to get it snapped. Out of the eye, handoff, Barber, right guard, turning, pushing, pushing, touchdown, touchdown, Marion Barber. Their first loss of the season came at Dallas, with Manning throwing an uncharacteristic two interceptions. He'd get them back on track with a win the following week versus Philadelphia, but the comfort and confidence of 10-1 and was fleeting, and the skid would continue versus the division rival Titans. Happens to Young, sets up, preening around the bend, doesn't get him. He throws one up, field, catch at the 40-yard line of the post. Long count, he snaps, balls down, kicks up, hits no good. He missed it short. And then the Jaguars the following week. All right, here's Ben and Terry start the third quarter. Jaguars football and radios brought to you by Bud Light. Always worth it. This one bounces, goes over the head of Wimbush, picked up by Drew at the 10. He's across the 15, looks for a hole 20. There he goes, 25, 30. He's on the run, 40. He's gone. 50, 40, 30. Look at the rookie go. 20, 10, 5, and touchdown, Jaguars. Ironically, the Colts stumble had happened a bit earlier this year. At 10-3, they had gone from the first seed in the AFC to looking up at the Baltimore Ravens and San Diego Chargers, who were the second and first seed, respectively. They would need some help to have home field advantage, but after the skid they just experienced following their 9-0 start, the Colts had bigger fish to fry by that point, one of whom was the Cincinnati Bengals. The Colts still in the hunt for a, a bye and, and uh, home field throughout the playoffs. Cincinnati trying to keep alive their hopes for a playoff spot. Third down goal from the five. Takes the snap, sets up, pumps, pumps again, throws, touchdown, Marvin Harrison! Marvin Harrison, seventh of the year, 117th of his career, and the Colts lead it 9-3. Boy, Marvin was coming down along the line of scrimmage, he just stopped, and he hesitated rather than stop, and Peyton got him before he reached the next defender for the touchdown. Manning takes the snap, drops, looks, fires, touchdown, Marvin Harrison! What a catch! I say, yep, touchdown, Colts! Manning 
Bullets over the defense perhaps changes the play on second down and five. Peyton will take to Dominic Rhodes. Looks, looks. Here's one out to Reggie Wayne. Touchdown, Reggie Wayne! He gets one in the corner of the end zone. The fourth touchdown pass by Peyton Manning and the Colts and extended the lead to 30 to 13. Reggie's ninth touchdown catch of the end of the year and the Colts have a 17 point lead. That's the end of the ball game. The final score. Marvin Harrison's hat trick and Reggie Wayne's icer were the four touchdowns Peyton Manning threw in what was a very important win for the Colts. At 11-3, their chances for the one seed were slim, but still very much alive. They definitely were for the two seed, in which their only competition was one team. A team that they had shared history with. And since this team's already aging starting quarterback had missed most of the previous week with an injury to his throwing hand, it was fair to wonder if they were still the threat they had once projected to be. With the Chargers out in front, the Colts nipping at their heels, and Steve McNair's hand still healing from taking a spike to it in Week 15, would the Ravens be able to close out the year on a strong note at Pittsburgh and home to Buffalo? For the sake of his pride, and more importantly, his job security, Brian Billick was hoping so. The last few years have been one heck of a whirlwind for the Ravens head coach. The afterglow of Super Bowl 35 wearing off right around the time that Steve Bishotti became majority owner was pretty poetic timing, as were all the issues surrounding Matt Cavanaugh and Kyle Bowler's development that led in part to the knockdown dragout between coach and owner that took place after the 03 season. While that argument between the two did a nice job of clearing the air and had left Billick with the impression that if nothing else he was dealing with a straight shooter, it did leave a strange taste in the coach's mouth from then on. Candor and communication can only get you so far in a professional relationship, particularly when concerning something as high stakes as NFL coaching and ownership. After the failure to get Buller to where he needed to be, the disappointment of crashing and burning to miss the playoffs in 2004, and the non-competitive burnout that was 2005, Billick was clearly on the ropes heading into 06. In fact, it had been very much in question until Bashadi publicly confirmed that his coach would be returning. After the 6-10 effort of 05, Bashadi immediately released this statement through the organization. We have an ongoing and extensive process to find ways to win, it stated. This included a thorough evaluation of Brian Billick. Collectively, we concluded that continuing with Brian as head coach gives us the best opportunity to win. After a few years of ownership that had gotten off to a bit of a rocky start from an on-field results perspective, it was perhaps in this moment that C. Bashadi truly proved what kind of owner he was going to be. It would have been very easy for him after they're getting off on the wrong foot, plus all that had gone progressively wrong in the last several years, to cut ties with Billick then and there. But, as he said he'd like to when his tenure began, he remained patient, process-based, and largely hands-off when it came to the key football decision-making. So while Billick undoubtedly felt the heat heading into 06, he appreciated that from Bashadi, as perhaps their initial disagreements had officially come full circle. I'm very appreciative to be a part of an organization, a group of people that we have here, he said. The ability to deal with and go through the difficulties that a team and an organization does and to deal with it in the way that we have is very important to me, and that is why I covet being here. The moment of appreciation between the two was nice to see and well received by many of the players in the locker room, including Jamal Lewis, who noted the organization's propensity to allow for second chances was something that meant a lot to him in particular. But it was a quote from kicker Matt Stover, the oldest of the old guard, who had come over from Cleveland in the 1995 move that drove something very clear home. There was still plenty of work to do. Some say that sometimes new blood and a new voice is a good thing, he said. I disagree. This league, it's so difficult to win, so hard to find the proper leadership. When you as a leadership group know that you have the guy that you can take to the Super Bowl for the sake of change, you don't want to do that. He's got the formula. He's got the understanding of what it takes to be a Super Bowl winning coach. He's proven that. While it was effectively a vote of confidence, Stover highlighted the lingering elephant in the room. The Ravens were a club with Super Bowl expectations, and they not only hadn't met them over the last few years, they hadn't even really come close. 
and it was in the corresponding press conference to announce Billick's return, in which the head coach was sat at the podium with Ozzie Newsom to one side and Bashadi to the other, that it became quite clear that the coach's leash wouldn't be especially long moving forward. I want him to focus more on the players and less on the press, Bashadi said rather candidly to the very same press group he was tired of Billick trading barbs with. I'm confident that he understands what we need to do to change and what he needs to do to change because he had an option to go elsewhere and it would have been fairly painless for him. We thought a new and improved Brian Billick was the best chance for the Baltimore Ravens. And Brian thought that the changes we were asking him to make were not significant enough for him to seek employment elsewhere. It was classic Bishotti in that his comments carried a fair and dignified but also starkly blunt critique of his longtime head coach. In that presser, the media and the public got a first-time look at some of the personal differences between the two men that made their professional dynamic a difficult one at times. If Ozzie and I are pleased with his growth, so will the players, Bashadi continued. They will be excited and inspired by his willingness to make changes that make them happier, that make them enjoy coming to work a little more, that make them compete a little harder, that make them listen a little more, maybe make them sweat a little more. That comment in particular reads like a wary professor discussing a student on academic probation at a parent-teacher conference. But in keeping with his classy profile, Bishotti left things on a respectful, magnanimous note. I admire him as a man. I admire his work ethic. I admire his character, he said of Billick. I am always willing to work with a man of character that is willing to grow and change. He showed a willingness to change. I'm very happy with that decision, and I think we'll be rewarded for that patience. Billick, in turn, sounded like that very student on academic probation, professing a much-needed modicum of self-awareness and acknowledging that he had put himself there in the first place. I've got to get back to being a head coach, he said. That involves a relationship with your players, albeit understanding the relationship between player and head coach is well-defined. That doesn't mean you can't pull yourself back into that environment more effectively. I have to be more responsive and helpful to my assistant coaches to give them the platform and the resources they need to be successful. Going back through the years, it's a comment like this that colors the complaints of players like Chris McAllister and Ray Lewis, bemoaning the deterioration of the Ravens locker room and team culture in a different light. To varying degrees, this all came back to Billick and the laissez-faire coaching style he employed. In 2000, it was fresh and fun to see the swaggering head coach take on the persona of his bullying, smash-mouth team. What they did to opposing offenses, he did to critical voices in the media, towering over them in stature and sneering and snapping at them when they dared to question his decisions or his players' performance. But as the years wore on and the roster churn led to lessening results, the facade began to fade away. What was left was a good football coach whose inability to yield consistent winning seasons kept him from being great, and whose brash, cocksure attitude, which impressed and mystified the aging Art Modell, clashed severely with the similarly wired Steve Bishotti, who was equal parts smooth business savvy and cutthroat boardroom conquistador. After a disastrous 2005 that wrought the worst regular season of the Billick era and spelled the end of any hope in Kyle Bowler's chances to become a legitimate starting quarterback, every step of the way moving forward was going to be a tenuous one for the men who would preach fire and brimstone about storming the lion's den with a spear in hand, as opposed to, quote, tippy-toeing in. All throughout the 2006 season, even despite their sustained success, Brian Billick knew he was no longer the hunter, but the hunted. It's why he had given up on Bowler and moved in on Steve McNair. It's why he put aside any differences with Ray Lewis to keep his defense's core together. It's why he fired Jim Fossil, even with a 4-2 record, and assumed the play-calling duties from then on. And it's what made the closing stretch of that season such a crucial one. Sitting at 11-3 with two to play, Baltimore still hung on to the hope that the 12-2 Chargers would slip a bit and let them into the one seed by virtue of their head-to-head tie-breaking win. In the mix for the two seed were the 11-3 Colts and the 10-4 Patriots, who'd be preying on Baltimore's downfall over the final two games. It was going to be a fight to the finish for a first-round bye. Fighting was something very familiar to most of this roster, and especially to Steve McNair. 
healthy and ready to be reinserted into the lineup for the Ravens' Week 16 game at division rival Pittsburgh, he had something else on the line than Billick, but faced a similar pressure that the battle coach did as the team entered the home stretch. For Billick, it was job security. For the aging quarterback at McNair, he was hoping to secure his legacy. It wasn't as if he would look at his career as a failure if he never won a championship, but the reason he continued to hang around and gut out season after season after all the wear and tear his body had accumulated was that he was seeking some validation for it all. The Ravens as a club were saddled with the weight of Super Bowl expectations. McNair, in turn, was weighed down by the pressure of continuous postseason failure. For many reasons, the two parties were a perfect match, especially at the time they came together. But on the outside, McNair was a cool customer. Pressure is what you make of it, he once said. It makes me play harder. I never believed anyone could put more pressure on me than I put on myself. People expect great things from me. I expect great things from myself. From the scar tissue of failure to the anchor of living up to a championship pedigree, McNair and the Ravens' relationship had a Shakespearean feel to it. And with two weeks to go in the regular season, and then the vortex of chaos that was the NFL playoffs, there was still plenty of time for it to turn into a tragedy, rather than the triumph they'd set themselves up for at 11-3. and three. Their first test would be the 7-7 seven and seven Pittsburgh Steelers, clinging to life in the AFC wildcard race. Baltimore had already handled their business at home against the Steelers in a 27-0 shutout, but suffice it to say, a divisional matchup on the road is never a guarantee. Having said that, the Ravens, with their starting QB back in the lineup, got off to about as good of a start as you could. McNair under center, drops the throw, has time, looking deep, throws middle of the field, Clayton got, got it, touchdown. touchdown Ravens, Mark Clayton on a perfect throw from Steve McNair. Roethlisberger to throw, short drop, looks right under pressure, wrapped up and he dropped. He is dropped for the second time today, back at about the 17-yard line. Play action, lob, end zone, touchdown, back of the end zone, Dan Wilcox on the It was as perfect a start for a game as they could have asked for, but the 06 Ravens were not a perfect team, and one of their issues, inconsistencies in the passing game, bucked its head just as the game was starting to seriously tilt in their favor. Play action fake, McNair wants to throw it. Throws it down the field, the pass is tipped and intercepted. Steelers have it with the football, they say Townsend, and he's going to be knocked down at the 39. Nair's rifle of a pass lacks in touch and was a bit behind Clayton, careening off the young receiver's hands into the waiting arms of the Steelers' DB. Pittsburgh took advantage, marching down a short field and punching one in to make the score 14-7, and regaining some much-needed momentum. It was in a moment like this that the prior year Ravens teams would have panicked like deer in the headlights for a litany of reasons, not the smallest of which was inexperience at the quarterback position. But not this year. Now with Air McNair behind center. show blitz. McNair drops the throw. Pump. Now he fires. Left sideline. He's got a man open. Touchdown, Ravens! Demetrius Williams! The quick bounce back after the mental error was a hallmark of what made McNair great as an older quarterback as his body and processing skills began to wear down. There's a loosely defined it factor following around players like that that tend to stay with the players the rest of their games age along with their bodies, something Steelers D-lineman Brett Kiesel noted in a sign of respect after the game. To me, he's the secret weapon this year, he said. He's the reason they are where they are. He came into a new system and now he's taking them to the playoffs. And while Steve's return to the lineup was a big story that day, it wasn't the only one. In fact, he'd even throw another pick. But it didn't matter, because it was his clutch play and calming presence that was there to complement the Ravens' real weapon from the 06 season, their defense. With the score 21-7 and Pittsburgh threatening deep in the red zone, they showed once again why they had begun to draw some favorable comparisons to their 2000 predecessors. Willie Parker, straight up the middle, he's to the five-yard line, fumbles the ball! Loose ball and is picked up at the two-yard line. The Ravens have it, Ed Reed running with it, to the 10, 20, 
30, cuts back, and he's knocked off his feet at the 35-yard line, and the Ravens come up with a ball on their first forced turnover of the afternoon. Wow, what a play. While the 2000 Ravens under Marvin Lewis relied on disciplined gap play and zone coverage to shut down the run consistently and take the ball away by being in the right place at the right time, the 06 unit was a beast of a different sort. Led by swashbuckling young coordinator Rex Ryan, they employed the strategy of what he called organized chaos. Whether it was blitzing downhill with cannonball rookie strong safety Dewan Landry, or standing up Landry's fellow rookie defensive tackle Haloti Nada moonlighting him as a linebacker, Ryan was never short on ideas and enthusiasm for humiliating opposing offenses. Roethlisberger to throw, deep down the middle, wobbly pass intercepted. Dewan Landry has it at the 30, 20, 15, 10, he might go, he's at the 5, lunges forward, he is at the 1 yard line. From the shotgun, Roethlisberger pumps, looks over the middle. Now he throws it, it's intercepted at Reed midfield. He's to the 40. 35, spins out of a tackle, coming near side 30. 20, one man to beat, and he's taken down at the 11. Checked at the 16-yard line. Third and goal, Ravens from the two. Todd Heap in motion, backs in the eye. Give us to Jamal Lewis, straight ahead, hurdles a pile, and he is in for the touchdown, Ravens! As time expires in Pittsburgh, the Ravens... The Ravens' offense had done their jobs, and after another dominating performance, it was starting to come into context just how good Ryan's side of the ball had been that season. After some up-and-down outings mid-year, the Ravens' defense hadn't allowed a team to score 20 on them over the past six straight weeks. That this remarkable consistency came from such a malleable unit that brought different looks at you week to week, series to series, and play to play was a credit to brilliant game planning, as was the talent of the unit, who produced all season long. Trevor Price and Adelius Thomas each topped 10 sacks with 13 and 11, respectively. Jarrell Suggs followed closely with 9.5, as did middle linebacker Bart Scott with the same number, a hilarious stat that highlights Ryan's mag genius. Ed Reed and DeJuan Landry each had five interceptions from free and strong safety, a stat that in and of itself is almost as unbelievable as the fact that one player had more than them. Chris McAllister, the mercurial cornerback who had been in Baltimore since 1999 and had his fair share of ups and downs along the way, would finish the year with six picks of his own. And Ray Lewis, the heart and soul of the unit, who had come back to the team with personal and contractual issues unresolved, was his old self, tallying a team-leading 80 solo tackles, five sacks, two interceptions, and a forced fumble. Whatever misgivings he had were now alleviated, as Billick, and by extension the team, had found his mojo once again. And the Ravens had a serious quarterback behind center for the first time ever. Lewis and the defense were ready for it all to be finally validated. The years of struggling through regular seasons as the main driving force of the franchise in a league that was becoming more and more offensively oriented. The years of playoff failures, if they even made it at all, weighing heavier and heavier on their psyche. They were so close to making it back to the Super Bowl, they could taste it. And it was another game, taking place at the same time as their beatdown of the Steelers, that would help their chances of doing so, by virtue of a first-round bye, eminently more possible. 48 yards as Chad Stanley will hold. Brian Pittman, the long snapper. The snap is down. Brown's kick on the way. It has the distance. And it's good! Merry Christmas! The Texans beat the Colts for the first time ever. Chris Brown good as time runs out. 27-24. The Texans win. After battling with second-year QB David Carr all day, Peyton Manning had thrown three touchdown passes and kept an on-the-ropes Colts defense in the fight, in a crucial fight for their playoff seeding purposes. But it wasn't enough. Inside the two-minute warning, Carr orchestrated what would amount to a game-winning drive, setting up kicker Chris Brown to boot the Texans past their division rival in a 27-24 win. 
After a 9-0 start, the Colts had dropped to 11-4 in a late-season collapse that they usually reserve for a playoff game. Or, so would go the jokes and snipes at the time from the skeptical press. With the Ravens taking care of business in Pittsburgh to get to 12-3, and and the Chargers beating the Seahawks in Seattle to take pole position for the number one seed, Indy's hopes of a first-round bye had severely dwindled. It was really disappointing for us not to come through with the win down here, Tony Dungy said, but that's the way everything's been this year. It's a downer of a quote, maybe not what you'd want to hear from your head coach when there's still plenty to play for moving forward. But if Dungy was down, Peyton Manning was happy to take up that torch for him. This is a critical time for us, he said. This is the time when people on the outside will start pointing fingers. As a team, we need to stay together, and guys just need to do their jobs a little bit better across the board in all three phases of the game. By then, Manning was so used to taking barbs for late-season disappointments. He was used to his immense talents and unrivaled work ethic not amounting to much in the way of postseason wins, even when he wanted them to more than anyone. Perhaps he was so used to all of this that by 2006 it had already been sufficiently confronted, and he and the Colts were ready to move past it. Perhaps. The Colts would return home for Week 17 against Nick Saban's 6-9 Miami Dolphins. The two-seed was still faintly in play for them, but they first had to focus on winning and getting to 12-4 to keep the third slot. New England would wind up there at day's end, but Indy would edge them out thanks to their head-to-head win in Foxborough if they were able to beat Miami. The Week 17 contest would prove to be no walk in the park for the Colts, as Dolphins quarterback Cleo Lemon had a frisky afternoon and kicker Alindo Mare refused to miss when given the opportunity. It was a credit to Indy's much maligned defense for holding the Dolphins to field goals in the first place, as Lemon, who was making his first ever start, moved the ball fairly well on them. Were they tightening up at just the right time? It was possible. But the story of that day was Manning, who was ready to put it all on the line, even after a grueling regular season. Steps up, steps up, steps up, gets away, he's going to run, 10, 5, touchdown, Pete Manning, and he's he hurt, no, he's up, an 11-yard run by Pete Manning, his third. He wasn't hurt on the play, or if he was, he didn't let it keep him from continuing on. The idea, obviously, is to be playing some of your best football in the month of January, he said after the game. It's what we've kind of talked about. Late on, the score was 20-15, to 15, when he looked in the direction of his favorite target to throw for a game-icing score. Manning looks, pumps, he sets up, here's one out, Marvin is there, touchdown, Marvin Harrison, his sixth touchdown of the last three weeks, his 12th this year. Lemon would throw for a consolation touchdown to make the final score 27-22, to 22, but it was too little, too late. Indianapolis would finish the season at 12-4 and four after a gritty win, one in which Peyton Manning put the team on his back and took a solid defensive performance as the providence he'd need to help lead them to victory and the AFC's third seed. Tony Dungy was a bit more upbeat in the locker room this week than last. You could see how much this game meant to us, he said. That Peyton run was something where he usually slides there at about the three or four. We had backs running hard late and we had good, good intensity throughout the game. Their seeding would officially be locked in that afternoon, thanks in part to one of the other games on the Week 17 slate being played over on the East Coast. Set the kick off for the Buffalo Bills. Corey Ross will await the kick back at the five-yard line for the Ravens. Crowd on its feet for the final regular season game of the 2006 season. The Ravens would play host to the Buffalo Bills for their final regular season contest, with a win and some help from the Chargers being what they need to earn the number one seed in the conference. Steve McNair was so close to another Super Bowl run he could smell it. Brian Billick knew what it would mean for him if they were to embark on one. But once again, it was Rex Ryan's defense that would come out of the gates firing in a critical spot. Formation. Lossman under center. Tosses it left side. McGahee looking for an opening. Picks his way through a little traffic. Gets out to the 25-yard line. Loose ball. The Ravens signal they have it. The officials converge on the pile at the 25-yard line. And the Ravens have recovered. 
The Ravens will take over their first forced turnover of the afternoon. McNair and the offense did their job to set up Matt Stover for field goals for much of the afternoon, which kept the game tight throughout. This was especially true when Baltimore's one big blunder of the day made the score 9-7 halfway through the third quarter. He has Price in read to the right side, Evans wide to the left, the snap. JP scans the field, looking deep, looking for Evans, wide open inside the 20-yard line, the pass is complete, touchdown, touchdown, Lossman to Leon. One thing about that 06 Ravens defense, when they made a mistake, they wouldn't let it shake their confidence. Lossman out of the shotgun, throws near side, intercepted, Chris McAllister, and he's going in for the touchdown, 10-5, touchdown, Chris McAllister. And the Bills hurry down the field and will go no huddle, out of the shotgun, first and goal from the four. Lossman looks end zone, throws, and it's intercepted. Samori Roll, and he's going to go. 30, 40, one man to beat. Now he's pulled down by the quarterback at the 45-yard line. Two minutes to play here at M&T Bank Stadium. McNair to the line. Backs in the eye. Hand off to Mike Anderson, sweeping near side. Steps over a couple of Bills players, and he's free. 50, 40, down the near sideline. 30, cuts back. 35, 25 rather, and he's finally brought down to the 24-yard line. Ravens fans celebrating as they make their way for the exit. It will be a happy new year here in Baltimore as the Ravens will win this afternoon. The defense running riot and the offense doing enough to scrape out a win. The script looks similar to so many outings the Ravens had won in recent weeks. The injury to McNair's hand be damned. In his advanced age, he had a team around him that seemed ready to carry him across any finish line. After years of having to be that player for the Titans and costing himself in a litany of injuries to do so. Baltimore's locker room was in a celebratory mood, even despite the fact that San Diego's win across the country meant they'd miss out on the number one seed. They were more focused on the fact on what they'd just done, giving them the second spot at the top of the conference and an all-important first-round bye. Uh, yeah, we were, you know, we were excited about it. I mean, we, we love playing, you know, playing at home, you know, we, you know, obviously the, uh, you know, their other Super Bowl, we had, we had to win a couple of games on the road, um, you know, so we knew we could do it that way, but we love playing at home, we love the, you know, our fans, we thought, you know, having that, that first round, you know, buy would be, help, be helpful, you know, get guys fresh and, and, uh, you know, we, we, but we, we, it was, it was a sense of accomplishment for us that we were excited about trying to do that because that was one of our goals. But, it, you know, that wasn't our, you know, be-all, end-all goal. We knew, you know, however you got to get there, you can, you know, we've done it the hard way. We were going to try to try to do it a little, little easier by playing at home. Two for one. We won when we actually won two, Trevor Price said. That was our focus. It's something that gives us an advantage more than anything else. Now someone else has to come here and play us. Chris McAllister, whose pick six blew the game open for Baltimore, noted that they were laser focused on getting the first round by to ensure that everyone dealing with nagging injuries would get sufficient time off. Coming into the game, it was something that was at the top of our agenda, to come in and get the victory, just so we can have that week off, he said. A lot of people can really use it. We can rest up a couple of injuries in guys that didn't suit up today. A few of those guys he mentions were key players, namely Jonathan Ogden, who was dealing with a toe injury that had cropped up recently. But by the time of the divisional round, he'd be ready to go for whoever the Ravens' opponent would be. In his own 49, out of the shotgun. Four-man rush, quick pass, intercepted by Law, up the left side, 35, he's got to beat Manning, and Manning misses the tackle, Ty Law, 15, 10, and inside the 10 to the 8. It was a frustrating day for Peyton Manning, who would throw three interceptions against the Kansas City Chiefs in a tightly contested wildcard game. That one included to his old nemesis, Ty Law. Kansas City managed to keep things close by limiting Indy to field goals early and taking the ball away from Manning when he tried to challenge them deep. It had all the makings of a classic Colts choke job, allowing the moment to get too big for them on a big stage in front of their home fans versus an inferior team. 
Thankfully for Manning, the rest of his squad, including two of the team's biggest offseason acquisitions, came to play that day around. On the stretch play right, they give it to a die, cuts it up field 40. Hunter's attacker gets across the 45 to the 47. First down. First first down of the afternoon. Justin Snow, the long snapper, waiting for the snap. It's there, it's down. Benetieri gets the kick away. It is long enough, it looks good, it is good! Leading 3-0, Hunter Smith the hold. Snap, the ball's down, the kick on the way is good, and the Colts have a 6-0 lead. Snap is there, the kick is on its way. He's got every bit of it, he's got every bit of it. He made it 50 yards, and the Colts go to the locker room with a 9-0 lead. Adam Benetieri with three field goals. A die now with 110 yards rushing. Manning on second down and one. Gives it to a die off the right. Cuts back left. He tars. Scores. Touchdown. Joseph Adai. And the Colts lead. Rookie running back Joseph Adai ran for 122 yards and a touchdown. Free agent kicker Adam Vinatieri, who was brought in for big moments like this, banged home three field goals, and the Colts' defense made critical stops when they needed to in a full-team effort that all too often hadn't happened in years past. And of course, when he was truly needed to salt the game away, Peyton Manning came through. Score for a first. Peyton pump fake, pump fake, throws the back of the end zone, touchdown Ricky Wayne! His five-yard touchdown strike to Reggie Wayne basically put the game out of reach, and Indy would go on to win it 28-3 after their defense forced a fumble and put an exclamation point on the proceedings. Peyton had played with his C game, and the Colts elevated themselves around him to push on through to the next round, something the quarterback was cognizant and appreciative of after the game. You have to keep playing, he said. Every time you drop back to throw, your goal is to possess the ball on the next play. Three times, I was very poor on that. As soon as it gets you second-guessing, as soon as it gets you gun-shy, that's when you have problems. Our defense was awesome today. We made some mistakes, and the defense made sure we didn't pay for it. It was quite a surprising reversal for a team that had surrendered 173 rushing yards per game throughout the regular season, and something that wasn't lost on their key players. We heard it all about having the worst defense, defensive end Dwight Freeney said. Now we can hear this. We have the best run defense in the playoffs. Freeney had every right to talk his talk after the victory, but the Colts would be facing quite the test. In fact, the best defense from the regular season in the Baltimore Ravens the next round. For a variety of reasons, it was going to be a hostile environment. This was something that wasn't lost on Peyton Manning, who knew that to pull off an upset on the road in the divisional round, he'd need to play much better than he had against the Chiefs. It's a big challenge, he said. Playing Baltimore is tough enough, but to go there, I think it's one of the tougher places to play. And they've been off a week and are fresh. The Ravens would in fact be fresh after taking the bye week off, and most of the roster would be 100% ready to go in the biggest playoff game to be played in Baltimore in several decades. Funny enough, the last time the divisional round had come to Charm City was the famous, or infamous, Ghost of the Post game, in which the Raiders took down the Baltimore Colts in an overtime classic. A lot had transpired since then, including the Ravens coming to town and winning a Super Bowl of their own. But for a lot of people who would be in the stands for the 06 divisional round matchup, nothing could erase the pain of Robert Ursay stealing away the team that made them fall in love with football. And even though Ursay was long since gone, they were going to make sure that the team that they had once loved would hear all about it. Well, that one I remember vividly, and, and it is an indelible memory. And it, everybody thought, oh, this is really taking this. The Colt thing was still very much was Baltimore against the Colts was still a big deal and it's no longer a big deal but in 2006 it was and this was the revenge game we're going to knock them out we're in the playoffs they have Peyton Manning they have a nice team and uh you know this is going to be a great moment for for Baltimore and uh, there was just an intense almost almost palpable 
sense of of just hunger people were like you know bring them on bring them in here let's 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 just kill these ursays poet george herbert once said that living well is the best revenge the concept of going on to do bigger and better things as a way to stick it to people who've wronged us is a nice idea but the psychology of it is very interesting are we living well simply because we're living well happy or content because we've unburdened ourselves from those who are weighing us down or are we, quote, living well, in appearance only, trying to show said people just how happy we are as a means of conveying that they didn't mean that much to us in the first place? The honest answer to that question probably varies person to person, but it's likely that there were plenty of Baltimore football fans of a certain age who were equally as happy to win Super Bowl 35 as they were to stick it to the then ghost of Bob Ursay and to the league at large for continuing to deny them expansion opportunities through the 1990s. Is this an especially healthy way to live? Probably not, but it's undeniably human. The Baltimore Colts have been one of the founding franchises of pro football as we know it today, and all along their way, they'd cultivated a rabid fan base that had earned Memorial Stadium the nickname of the world's largest outdoor insane asylum. Baltimore had been crazy about the Colts, but the slow and steady erosion of the passion over the Ursay years as the deeply troubled owner projected his own pain out onto the fan base was a tragic process. Over the course of a decade, the once proud Colts faithful had watched their team go from NFL royalty to nothing more than a laughing stock. And in the end, nothing was even left to show for their suffering, as Ursay packed up the team and bolted from town after years of conflict over plans for a new stadium had come to a head. Safe to say that anyone who lived through all of that or had heard about it secondhand from their elder family members would be ready to bring the energy anytime the Colts came back to Baltimore to play the Ravens. The paradox of being a Ravens fan is that this is the same thing that many Browns fans do when our team heads to Cleveland, and we conveniently shrug off their emotions as it related to the tragedy they went through a decade after we did. But sports fandom seldom makes a ton of sense, and really, it doesn't have to. Sports tap into something territorial, almost tribal, deep within us, and there's arguably nothing that does this better than the modern equivalent of a gladiator match that is football. These primal emotions were whipped up into a fever pitch in Charm City in the days leading up to January 13th, 2007. In an effort to contextualize all of this as it was going on, David Steele wrote an article for the Baltimore Sun, one of the many the Sun dedicated to the run-up to this game, in which he looked back on the prior 20-plus years since the move. In it, he provides several chronological anecdotes about Baltimore's relationship with the Colts since 1984, with the first of them coming in 1988, when he'd returned to town to write a story on this very dynamic. Upon arrival, I discover a couple of things. There is still a Colts fan club active in town, several, I later learn, and the mood of the city when the Colts are mentioned veers from clinically depressed to psychopathically angry. The consensus? Local fans wish nothing but intense pain on the Ursays, but cannot bring themselves to root against their lifetime loves. Remember, this was only year four. Steele, a DC native, kept a keen eye on this topic over the years, including after the Ravens had been in the picture for a while. Flash forward to January 2001. Now I'm in San Francisco. The Colts have been gone from Baltimore for more than a decade and a half, and the Ravens are coming to Oakland for the AFC Championship game. Time to give the old story a twist. I call Steve Molesky, then a host on WBAL Radio, and discover there's a Ravens fan club in the Bay Area, started by a 24-year-old transplant from Reisterstown named Adam Meister. Molesky, who these days calls games for the Orioles farm team in Aberdeen, describes his generation's angst. Sometimes our city is accused of living in the past too much, but that's because it was such a glorious past. Meister, now back in Baltimore, involved in community activism and reportedly city politics, was seven when the Colts left. I remember the Orioles winning the World Series. That's how my sports memory begins, he says. Then a few months later, I remember something bad happening. But according to Steele, there were plenty who still remembered it all very well and hung on to that anger for 20 years. Flash forward to October 2004, a month after I arrived at the Sun. I was getting a tire repaired on Howard Street and a truck driver was waiting with me for service. A Mayflower truck driver. 
I find that hilarious and tell him so, something along the lines of not expecting to see a Mayflower truck in Baltimore ever again. Man, all that Mayflower stuff, that's a myth, he says. People never stop hiring Mayflower around here. I've heard stories about people calling and cursing us out, people throwing stuff at the trucks, but that's it. I get my car back, drive up the street, turn a corner, and see the Mayflower building on Charles Street. Figure that maybe I had been wrong. Two years later, a caller to a local radio station tells the host that he still hated the Colts and still threw things at the trucks every chance he got. At roughly the same time, I come across the United Affiliate Moving Company that advertises its role in moving the Browns here from Cleveland. In broad daylight, it must be noted. Steele closes his piece out with a capstone that pretty well contextualizes all the fervor and emotion as they related to the most important figures in this whole saga, the players themselves. Flash forward to last month, talk show host Tom Davis raises this very topic, wondering where the dividing line is between old Colts fans and new Ravens fans, and whether the old fans are fading away and taking the old memories with them. An older fan who used to watch the Unitas teams and a middle-aged fan who remembers the pain he felt as a kid seeing the moving fans drive away call in with their thoughts. Then a younger fan phones in and calls this the most boring conversation he'd ever heard, and would they please shut up and start talking about the Ravens again? Flash forward to Saturday as the Sun reports that Ravens rookie safety Dewan Landry innocently asks if Unitas had ever played on the last Colts teams to play here before it moved to Indy. Old loyalties die hard, time marches on, not necessarily in that order. It's a hard fact of life, and it wasn't one that Baltimore fans would want to hear in one of the most emotionally charged sports weekends of their lives. That no matter what happens, good or bad, life marches on. And when something bad happens, whether it's a bump in the road or something much worse, as long as you're still alive and moving, there's plenty of chances that something equally good may happen to you as well. Like getting a new team and winning a Super Bowl with them within five years of their coming into the picture. Old Colts fans had every right to be angry about the move, and nobody would stop them from raining jeers down onto them when they took the field and all throughout the game. But facts are facts. Robert Ursay had been dead for 10 years. Peyton Manning had been 8 years old the night the organization he now played for was packed into a truck and moved halfway across the country. Dewan Landry wasn't even two. And as much as the Baltimore faithful may have felt this way, the game between the Colts and the Ravens wasn't about them. It was about the coaches and players on the field who had worked relentlessly to make it to the NFL and then get themselves in position to go on and win a Super Bowl. One of them was Peyton Manning, who'd only had playoff shame and embarrassment for his great work ethic to show, which was arguably second to none. But it wasn't just him and the Colts who had their reputations on the line. On decidedly thin ice was head coach Brian Billick, who had been brought back for 2006 on conditional status, enjoying the ride of a 13-3 regular season, but also recognizing just how tenuous things had become for him. Gone were the days of his brash, cocksure addresses of his team, inspiring awe and guaranteeing his power within the walls of the organization. Now, he was fighting for his football life with his back squarely against the wall, and the only way to stave off professional doom was postseason success right then and there. Fighting for his legacy in a manner similar to Manning was Steve McNair, who had put his body on the line for his team to the point that it was finally at long last beginning to fail him. As he had once dove across goal lines and trucked his way through defenders to gain every last yard, the team around him would now need to hoist him onto their shoulders and help him finally realize his dream of hoisting the Lombardi Trophy in what would be his best chance in many years. Well-equipped to help him do so were the members of the Ravens' old guard, veterans of the AFC Central days who had blown past Steve's Titans in 2000 and route to a Super Bowl 35 victory. In the years since, their shots at getting back to the mountaintop had been thwarted again and again by below-average quarterback play, and it was why their admiration for the battered but still effortlessly cool and collected McNair ran deeper than ever as they entered the biggest game they'd ever played in M&T Bank Stadium. 
Earlier in the year, Billick highlighted why this dynamic would prove to be unbreakable. With the relationship of Steve McNair and Ray Lewis, beyond the productivity of Steve McNair when that inevitable bump comes, that division, I'm confident, will not happen, Billick said. Those personalities will not allow it. And it hadn't. Lewis continued to speak glowingly of McNair throughout the season, and whether it was Jonathan Ogden blocking for the quarterback, Jamal Lewis running behind him, or Adelius Thomas, Chris McAllister, and Lewis holding it down on the other side of the ball, or even Matt Stover booting through kicks that McNair had set him up for, the guys who knew what it took to win the whole thing wanted it for the vet just as much as they wanted another one for themselves. Conversely, the new guard of Todd Heap, Ed Reed, Terrell Suggs, Haloti Nada, and others, and every other post-Super Bowl 35 face on this team were all hoping for their Dilfer moment from the steady and unspectacular 2006 version of McNair. It's a strange place to be in when you know for a fact that your very best shot at a championship is right in front of you, and all you have to do is go and execute. More often than not, it's much more complicated than that. And no one knew this better than Steve Bishotti. The self-made billionaire was a pragmatist, one to the point that he was able to very quickly forgive Robert Ursay for the Colts' move from Baltimore, and one that was able to put aside his personal differences with Brian Billick early in his tenure in order to facilitate the best possible future for his organization. But pragmatism has its limits, and even the man who insisted that everyone underneath his purview call him Steve was one prideful son of a gun. In the opening weeks of 2007, there was no doubt he was fixated on sending the team he'd once attended summer training camps of into an extended winter dirt nap. And he was relying on the man he placed a muted amount of faith in in Brian Billick to do it. It was a confluence of many things, all coming together on January 13th, 2007. They'd made for one of the most consequential games played in the history of Baltimore sports. And here's how it all went down. Strong here in Baltimore in just a few moments ago, as if they weren't riled up enough. Take a look at who is tossing the coin at midfield. Another favorite son of Baltimore, recent Hall of Fame inductee, Cal Ripken. Congratulations to Cal. The Ravens have won the toss. They will get their hands on the football first. That's Corey Ross, number 40. The regular return man for the Ravens with the season-ending injury to B.J. Sams, who was so outstanding for most of the regular season for Baltimore. We're underway. Corey Ross from the three. After a three-and-out opening series by McNair in the offense, they punted away to Manning and the Colts, who prodded their way down the field with pitch-and-catch passing and the steady running of rookie Joseph Adai. Someone up in the stands had unfurled a banner reading, 19 will always be better than 18. A dig at Manning that nodded back to Johnny Unitas' days under center in Baltimore. No doubt this emotional crowd was rocking early on in the nighttime contest. When faced with a third and short near the Ravens' ad zone, Rex Bryan's unit stood strong and held Indy to a field goal. He does puts it down, Benetieri's kick is on the way, and the Colts are on the board first. It's the Colts three and the Ravens nothing. 8.04 left to go in the first quarter. Down only 3 nothing. the game script was off to a solid start for the Ravens, who'd shown an ability to hang in and win close games. But it was halfway through the first quarter that the offense did the one thing they couldn't, considering their role in the operation. Turn the ball over. Rolls to the left side, throws up field to Todd Heap. He's up and short. Lost the ball. The Colts have it. Let's see what they're going to call here. After reviewing the play, the ball came loose before the runner's elbow hit the ground. There was a clear recovery by the Indianapolis player at the 31-yard line. It'll be Indianapolis ball at the 31 Despite the momentum swinging their way, Manning and the offense weren't able to capitalize much on the gift. Whether they were up to their old playoff choking hijinks or Baltimore's defense were as ready as ever to play, it became clear from this point that Adam Vinatieri was going to have to earn his free agency paycheck. 
He continued to do so following Heap's fumble, making this slow starter of a game six to nothing near the end of the first quarter. It's there. It's down. The kick is on the way. It looks good. It is perfect. And the Colts have a six nothing lead. The game up to that point had been lacking in offensive explosiveness, with the only big play having been Heap's fumble in the earlier sequence. It was clear that Baltimore's offense was struggling out of the gate, especially against the Colts' defense that had entered the playoffs as a maligned unit and had only started to turn things around a bit recently. But despite all the variables leading to McNair and his unit struggling in the opening quarter, there was one constant that could be counted on even in the worst of times. Rex Ryan and his collection of players bringing organized chaos to level out the playing field. deep over the middle and it's intercepted by Ed Reed at the 45-yard line of the Ravens, and the Ravens will take over there. There we go. Ed Reed trotted the ball all the way to the end zone, but they will mark it down where he landed at the 45-yard line. And for the first time this afternoon, you could say the Ravens defense got the better of Peyton. Ed Reed was the most celebrated and accomplished player on Baltimore's roster without a championship to show for his efforts. And in that moment, he showed just how much he wanted one by picking off arguably the best quarterback in the sport on the playoff stage. He'd been starved for a playoff moment since 2003, when he picked off Steve McDerrin a losing effort to the Titans. After his interception, the Ravens were down 6-3, following Matt Stover, another constant of their team, booting a field goal to cut the deficit. They now had a chance with a short field to drive and take the lead, and with a full head of steam, a member of the old guard led the way for the offense to start out. McNair gives to Lewis, and Lewis finds running room. Still on his feet. Inside the 30, to the 25 before he's knocked out of bounds. And there go those feet again. That time Bob Sanders had a shot at him in the open field. And Jamal Lewis with those those right feet of his, kind of like Jerome Bettis when he was younger. Bob Sanders is going to come in, number 21 here from the left. Right there, totally misjudges. And then the leg drop. In a throwback to his younger days, Jamal Lewis slashed and dashed his way from midfield to Indy's 25, and one of the first shows of explosiveness by the Ravens' offense that night. Steve McNair continued to apply the pressure, booting right and hitting Dan Wilcox inside the 10-yard line to set Baltimore up perfectly to take the lead with a touchdown. Jamal Lewis and Obi Mahaley in the backfield. This is Lewis. Lewis inside the five to the three. about how hungry Steve McNair is for a chance to get back to the Super Bowl. He says there isn't a day that goes by and he doesn't remember that he came up a yard short. It's a fond memory in St. Louis, a pretty bitty, a bitter memory in Nashville, and a memory that Steve McNair will take to the grave. On second and goal, Lewis, this time hit early and dropped a bit behind the line of scrimmage. It'll be third and goal. From about the four and a half yard line. Well, as you can tell by the score, we've had three field goals, so cracking the goal line to this point hasn't been easily done. Baltimore on third and goal with the ball just inside the Indianapolis five. Mike Anderson in the backfield. Todd Heap and a bunch of wide receivers up front. McNair with time, throws a quick one, and that's intercepted at the goal line. Antoine Bethea, the rookie. Well, Steve really tried to jam it in to Todd Heap. 
And that's really what's going to happen right here. He's dialed in on Heap all the way. Never looks at anybody else. He saw that he had Cato June beat. But there were nine minutes left to play in the second quarter when this happened, and the Ravens still only trailed 6-3. to three. But it was a devastating moment for an offense that had been hoping to shake the rust off from their earlier mistake and go ahead with the game's first touchdown. Instead, it was Steve's rookie mistake that kept the game at 6-3. to three. The forced throw to Heap was perhaps an indication that McNair was pressing a bit too hard considering the circumstances. But despite the offense not living up to their end of the bargain, the defense had to show up to play. On the next drive, they had their difficulties doing so. Backed up from his own end zone, Peyton Manning methodically moved the ball downfield, and thanks to a dropped interception from Chris McAllister and a broken flea flicker working out in Indy's favor, they managed to burn six minutes off the clock and set up Vinatieri to again make it 9-3. I can remember Baltimore flushed it. Now, mentioned this before, Adam Vinatieri is within one of tying Gary Anderson for most postseason field goals. But beyond 50 yards isn't his specialty. This from 51 yards away, and it is hit the crossbar and bounced over. This would not have been good from 51 yards and three inches. To say that this made it by the hair of his chinny-chin-chin would be the understatement of the year. It's going to land softly right on the crossbar and just nudge over. You don't earn a reputation as a clutch player without a bit of luck, and Vinatieri certainly had gotten to the point of the former with some help of the latter. Baltimore would get the ball with some time to drive, but they'd sit on it, content to go in the half, down just one score. And on second and two, it's going to be Anderson again, and that brings down the booze. Hardly, uh, hardly aggressive play calling. It's not like you got a rookie at quarterback. You've, but I think maybe the confidence uh, is a little bit rattled. That indie defense has been so aggressive. Maybe Brian Billick doesn't mind going into the locker room down just 9-3. That's the end of the first half. And that's your Indy got the ball out of the locker room and once again embarked on a clock-killing drive. Once again, the Ravens' defense were ready to bend, but not break. We had a little rain, but it is plain old balmy. Third and six, Manning from the shotgun. Steps up, looks, throws, far side of the field, incomplete. Short of Reggie Wayne. And that will bring Vinatieri on again. Well, Peyton again, by moving around, able to buy himself a little extra time. And it looked to me that Reggie Wayne didn't get on the same page as Peyton Manning as to where he should have been. I think Manning was expecting Wayne to break off his pattern and come back to him. Wayne kept going down the field. Vinatieri has connected from 51, just barely. This is from 48. On its way. Looks good. And Vinatieri... What'd you say before, Dan? Money. Money. Ching. <laughs> Money. The Ravens offense on the next drive had the look in their eyes that they knew time was running short. Down 12-3 as the halfway point of the third quarter approached. They had fourth and four near midfield and set up to go for it. But a Colt timeout stymied their momentum and rookie Sam Cook was sent out to punt the ball away. Another opportunity missed and Indy took over with a chance to keep pouring it on. Rose. 
Fresh legs, breaks through, 25, 30, out across the 35-yard line in a first down. Just like he did last week against the Chiefs, Dominique Rhodes breaks a big run that buys the Colts some field position. Take a look at the blocking by the Colts offensive line off right guard. That was sensational. Rhodes isn't even touched until he's about a dozen yards. It was on this drive that once again, the defense was given a golden opportunity to swing the momentum back Baltimore's way. And once again, let it slip through their fingers. Manning needs the 40 yard line for a first down. On the blitz, throwing it, intercept, no, he dropped it at midfield. Looks like Chris, no, not Chris McAllister, Ed Reed again. How risky was this throw under pressure by Peyton Manning? A guy right in his face, falling backwards, he throws it into huge traffic. And again, it's tipped. And again by Ray Lewis. Again, Ray Lewis tips what would have been a sure interception. Now, Ray doesn't know who's behind him. He's just making a play on the football. The Ravens' defense have been dynamited taking the ball away all regular season, a strength of a defense that can be fluky depending upon the bounce of the ball. Not to take away from how good Ryan's unit had been, but it was as the third quarter was nearing its end that day that they were learning just how difficult it was to consistently get their hands on the ball as they had previously. Indy punted, the Ravens' offense ran back onto the field, and it was starting to feel like put-up-or-shut-up time for McNair and Co. They've had some success running the ball. Not a bad time to go to play action, try to try to find something downfield. I know the cover two is tough, but there are holes down there. McNair. Deep down the middle. Oh, what a catch! What a catch by Todd Heath! Colts safeties were playing very deep and he still found room. Well, they had a couple successful running plays, but that, oh, how special is that? How special of an effort is it by this Pro Bowl tight end? He's been there a couple years, didn't get elected this year, but oh my gosh, what a catch by Todd. Todd Heap's leaping grab down the middle of the field effectively took the Ravens into the fourth quarter and was a positive sign for a team who needed one still down 12-3. They didn't go much further as a third and long dump off to Mike Anderson set up Matt Stover to go out and make the game 12 to 6 as the final countdown approached, a kick that he nailed. It had been a bleak day for the Ravens, but now within one score and over 12 minutes left, the game was still very much in reach. And after backing Manning up into his own end zone and forcing a third and long, Rex Ryan rushed one play and dropped the rest. And this happened. Quick snap, pump fake. Manning going deep down the sideline, and it is intercepted. Ed Reed. The whistles have blown. Every time it seems that Peyton Manning and the offense have attempted to hurry to the line and make something happen on third down, it's been a negative. Second interception of the day. For Amazingly, after missed turnovers and a lackluster day on offense, Baltimore had a chance to go ahead late in this game. Quickly facing a third and ten, Steve shuffled to his right and fired in the direction of the rookie receiver. Third down today. McNair on the move, throws up the middle. That's complete for a first down. Mark Clayton found the hole. The legs of Steve McNair buy himself some more time. 
But then look at the fundamentals. Once he gets out there with that strong arm of his... It was a savvy play by the veteran, and it kept Baltimore's hopes alive. But very quickly, they were facing third and nine. Approaching Stover's territory, they could have opted for a run and likely made it a field goal's difference. But once again, on third and long, they put the ball in McNair's hands. Third and nine. McNair, intercepted! Nick Harper! And the Colts take it right back. Well, on a third down situation, Steve McNair is going to try to find the rookie, Demetrius Williams. And Demetrius Williams got to fight for that football. For McNair, who'd embodied the word clutch and always shown heart in the big moments, it was a gut punch of a turnover. For the Ravens, one more decent drive from Manning and Co., and it was probably the ball game as the clock ticked inside the 10-minute mark. But they weren't done yet. They quickly forced a punt, and still down by just six points, McNair would once again have a drive to take the lead. Total yards. And once again, Baltimore. starting from so their own territory, they were stymied. Today. Has time this time, and throws incomplete, just as he was hit. And the punting unit will come on again. And again, McNair could find no one downfield against this umbrella defense of the Colts. They had him bracketed front and back. Brian Billick was pretty confident that he could solve this Colt defense because he worked with Tony Dungy. He said Tony even shared his defensive philosophy with me from time to time. The only way you can do it is you've got to complete short passes and keep moving the chains, something the Ravens haven't been able to do today is move the chains. Manning and the Colts took over again and drove towards midfield. Facing a third medium with 3.57 left to go in the game, and the Ravens in possession of just one timeout. It was a critical juncture facing them. Allowing an average of 78 a game. This is a huge third and five. For both sides. And for the next minute and 57 seconds, the Colts better hope they don't get into a review situation because without any timeouts, they can't ask for one. from the shotgun gets good protection throws far side diving catch by Dallas Clark for first down Corey Ivey must be speechless that this ends up being a completion how can you have coverage this tight and have a guy catch the ball on you he's right there and Dallas Clark looks like he had the left hand under the ball. We get a penalty marker on the play as Manning tries to get a playoff in a hurry. Well, Peyton, Peyton's trying to get it Seeing a matchup he liked, Manning audibled at the line and shuffled back to the shotgun. Taking the snap, he immediately fired one to the right at that matchup, tight end Dallas Clark, who was smothered in coverage by Corey Ivey. Clark bobbled the ball in the crook of his elbow and by some kind of miracle secured it into his torso before crashing to the turf. The Colts hurried to the line in an attempt to get a playoff, but no such gamesmanship was needed. Clark had caught the ball, and they were now in Vinatieri's field goal range as the Ravens put their third and final timeout to use. Indy would drive their way to another third down as a host of offensive players were pictured on the Ravens' sideline with blank stares. From McNair to Ogden, you could see the disappointment and disbelief painted on their faces. And as the game approached one minute to go with no stoppages left, Peyton Manning drove his shoulder into the turf on a third down and set his kicker up for a chip shot to ice the game. Well, as we saw last week in Dallas, 
This is hardly automatic. And keep in mind, a block and a run the other way wins the game for Baltimore. So it's not that this field goal is without risk. Vinatieri has been good from 23, 42, 51, and 48 yards. This one will be from 35 yards out. is on its way and it is good as the ball sailed through the uprights off the legendary right leg of adam vinatieri peyton manning fired a fist into the air and mouthed the words money with 23 seconds left on the clock and the scoreboard reading 15 to 6 he had set up his kicker to go and win the game coming through in the clutch in a contest in which he'd been held out of the end zone i know the ravens are in no mood to accept it right now but they had a really really fine season turning around a six and ten year from a year ago Brian Billick taking over the coordinator's job. They, they, they ought to be proud of themselves, but this is a bitter, bitter loss for Baltimore. One knee, and the Colts are winners. And what makes it worse, Greg, of all the teams in the world to lose to, they lose to the Colts. Adam Vinatieri. Five times they placed it down in front of him. Five times he split the uprights. And the Indianapolis Colts have advanced to the AFC Championship game with a 15-6 win. I'm not sure if we've ever won one before in the nine years I've played here without scoring a touchdown. My guess is no, Manning said after the game. You want to get touchdowns, and it was frustrating to have to settle for field goals. But we saw how our defense was playing early, and we thought field goals would be enough if we got enough of them. For a quarterback who'd become known for carrying his team in games with his razor-sharp football mind and whip of a right arm, he'd seen his team rise to the occasion around him on that night. After throwing two interceptions and having two more dropped by Baltimore's defense, there was perhaps no better example of the inverse of what we come to expect from the Colts. And it was that good fortune that was the Ravens' loss on that night. You know, between longtime Ravens fans, you can have your argument about what the worst loss in history, Ravens history is. Is it? And, and the three candidates would be Billy Cundiff kicking it wide, uh, you know, the Titans in 2019 or the Colts in 2006. To me, those are the three. And that, that was the first one. And it was just brutal. It was just one of those. Uh, it was a lot like the Titans game in 2019, where it just slowly dawns on you that something really bad is happening. And, and that's pretty much what happened. And, and uh, the, the feeling in the, in the city among the fans after that game was just, just emotionally bereft. That's, that's the best as, as I can put it. People were just, just, just depressed, shocked. Let, you know, go, I, I want to go away for a while and not think about this. It, it was really, your team can get knocked out of the playoffs in any year, but some, some years it's personal. This was personal, and that, that was by far, to that point, the worst loss the Ravens had ever had. Steve McNair also threw two picks, with turnovers typically being the hallmark of the only three losses Baltimore had suffered previously that season. It was a devastating way to end his age 33 season, and while there was reason to believe he would have more shots to go and win a Super Bowl, it was hard on that night not to think that he might have just let his last best one slip through his hands. The pained look in his otherwise expressionless face as he met Peyton Manning at midfield betrayed that feeling amidst the many he was feeling in that moment. Also likely to be acutely aware of what he had just missed out on was Brian Billick. You can't turn the ball over in a championship-style game, he said. That's an awful lot to overcome. 
The typically resolute coach was feeling all the desolation and dread in that moment that he had been building and building for years. His failure to find the right quarterback following Dilfer, his inability to get the best out of Kyle Bowler, his row with Steve Bishotti in 2004, and his chase for a quarterback to improve the on-field results leading him to McNair. In the banged-up veteran, it had appeared he had found the right guy to finally take him back to the promised land. But sometimes, that's how football seasons go. Your steady veteran turns the ball over too much. Your explosive defense fails to make that extra play or two. You're one or two yards away from really breaking through and swinging the momentum in your favor, and you fail. It can't always be explained why this happens, but the feeling of knowing that you could or should have won a Super Bowl and falling short is a devastation that's maybe second to none in football. This football team is as disappointed as our fans are, which is matched tenfold by the players, Billick said. The fans were deserving of better than that, but it just wasn't going to happen, and we will move forward now. Move forward. It was the thing that was obvious to refrain to, but it was fair to question what that would even look like. Steve McNair wasn't getting any younger. Baltimore might try and revamp their offense in the coming offseason after the way things ended with Bill at Clunk plays, and Steve Bishotti wasn't going to be any more patient with his already embattled head coach after an embarrassment like this in front of their home crowd. For the old guard seeking a return to the big game, and the new guard wanting desperately to see what it felt like, plus fan base who just had a stake driven right through their heart by the team they used to bleed blue and white for, the idea of moving forward couldn't be properly addressed until this tragedy had been appropriately processed. And as any weathered sports fan knows, this is a grief that we carry pieces of us with into great unknown, rather than ever fully moving on from. For some, this is an anchor that weighs on them, thinking about what it could have been. For others, it's a stumbling block, simply a lesson learned about failure on their way to the beautiful success that would outweigh it. But does it make those stuck in the middle, they who never won a championship to show for their efforts in the sport, an out-and-out failure? I don't think so. Because after all that these men went through and would continue to go through in their chase of the elusive glory, they proved themselves to be in possession of the wherewithal that would serve them well in other aspects of life, those that transcended their professional struggles. In the years since this devastating loss, we would learn a lot about these men, and also learn that while a lost playoff game might have seemed like a big thing in the moment, that there's much more to life than one football game, one season, or even an entire career. Nothing makes that more clear than looking back to this moment and all that came before it and would come after. 2007 was a lost year in Baltimore, one in which the sheen of the prior miracle season wore off in hard and fast fashion. Steve McNair started only six games with injuries, limiting him the rest of the season, while Kyle Bowler and fifth-round rookie Troy Smith spelled him to mixed and largely unsuccessful results. The nadir of the season was the Ravens' eighth consecutive loss, when they went down to Miami and lost a heartbreaker to the previously winless Dolphins team. After Matt Stover pulled a would-be game winner, it should have been clear that it just wasn't the Ravens' day. This was confirmed when their previously stout defense was torched by rookie quarterback Cleo Lemon and wideout Greg Camarillo, who connected for a 64-yard catch-and-run that cleared the Dolphins' bench in celebration of the win and left Brian Billick in stunned disbelief on the sidelines. It would probably be a lie to say that this loss was the beginning of the end for Billick, but it was the defining image of a lost season, one in which the levy finally broke and Billick's inability to develop a franchise quarterback to facilitate a consistent culture of winning finally caught up to him. Without McNair's veteran leadership and steady hand, Baltimore's offense cratered, and they finished the year at 5-11, their second losing effort in two years, and their third season in four in which they missed the playoffs. 
With McNair's future in question, and certainly not looking up, combined with the unrest this roster had felt about Billick heading into 2006, the bill and the head coach had finally come due in Bashadi's eyes. After the two men had had it out on a biblical scale as the owner had come to power a few years prior, and through all that Billick had done to wrestle back precious job security since, Steve could look himself in the mirror and honestly say that despite their personal differences, he had tried to make it work. And on Brian's part, the head coach had agreed to return to the team ahead of the 06 season on the condition that he would change things. In any relationship, be it personal or professional, this can usually be a sign that things are heading in the wrong direction. Unfortunately for Billick, whose fiery personality had forged the Ravens into the franchise they were to an extent, it was that very same fire that would prove to be nothing more than a nuisance to some in the building when the results on the field dried up. On December 31st, 2007, Shadi officially made the call and fired Billick after the Ravens' Week 17 victory over the Steelers, a win that snapped a nine-game losing streak and gave the best head football coach that Baltimore had seen in decades a winning note to end on. Steve Bashotti made a rare media appearance to explain the move, and he didn't hesitate to go deep into detail to help convey that he understood the magnitude of what he was doing. I believed that it was time for a change. I believe that we have the nucleus of a team that can get back to the Super Bowl, and that we felt that in the next five years, we had a better chance with a new coach than leaving Brian in that position, he said. It's a gut feeling. I have one job here, and that's to have a leader that I think gives us the best chance. We've been losing more than winning lately. Of the players reached for comment, two of them had been there with Billick through thick and thin. Sometimes the message can get repetitive after a while, Jonathan Ogden said in a brief and probably fair summation. I'm not saying I agree with it, said Matt Stover, but sometimes things have to change. It's a common and totally understandable refrain when a longtime coach is finally let go. It especially makes sense in the case of Billick, who, while hired as a schematics maven with the idea that he'd fix things under the hood offensively, wound up to be much more the leader of men type than he even had probably bargained for. We believe that we would be better with fresh blood or we wouldn't have made this decision, Bashadi continued. We obviously wouldn't fire Brian if we thought we were where we needed to be. In order to be successful, you have to take chances, and in order to take chances, you have to listen to your heart. You have to go with your gut. It doesn't mean that you don't fear being wrong, because I do fear being wrong. I could be three coaches past Brian Billick nine years from now, trying to still solve this puzzle. In a piece of analysis on the situation that reflected back to the 2000 season, when Billick stood in front of the media and defended his team at every turn against all manner of criticism, was new guard veteran free agent Derek Mason. For all we went through as a team, I think Coach Billick stood in there. And for all the verbal lashings from the fans and the media, he stood in there and took it, he said. That says a lot for the man, for his character. Yes, it was shocking, but the organization had to make a decision, and they felt it was the best decision for this team to move forward. For a pros pro like Mason, an endorsement like that was important. As soured things had gotten between Billick and Bashadi, Ray Lewis, and other players throughout the roster at times, when it came down to it, they all seemed to eventually come to an understanding that they would have to take this proverbial bad with the good. And when it came down to it, Bishotti revealed his character in this move by making it clear that despite their differences, this wasn't a personal move, but a football one. And he did so by acknowledging the magnitude of what he was doing in a fashion that we would ultimately come to know Bishotti for. How much blame you put on different people and how much you hold yourself responsible is new to me, he said. I hope that over time that Baltimore views me as good an owner as Brian Billick was a head football coach. I've got some catching up to do to the man that I asked to step down today. The jury's out on me. Brian's already got his Super Bowl. Steve Bashotti would go on to get his Super Bowl, and it would prove to be viewed as a very deserved one thanks to the classy reputation he would develop between this juncture and then. His handling of letting go of a club legend like this in such a fashion would be one of his first big steps towards this reputation. For Billick's part, his words were short and sweet, not necessarily befitting the typically loquacious coach, but understandable given the circumstances. He had to make a hard decision, and he did what he believes is best for the Ravens, he said of Bashotti. 
We are friends and will remain friends. As things often do in an NFL career, things ended not with a bang, but a whimper for Billick, the man who had rightly earned a reputation of his own as a bringer of the boom, both on and off the field. And little did anyone know at the time, this really was the end. Brian Billick would never take another NFL coaching job, instead parlaying his charisma and talent in front of a camera to the natural role of media analyst. Working for the NFL Network, Fox, and other reputable outlets, he seemed at peace to watch the game from afar and never felt enough of an itch to get back at it in the capacity he once had. In 2019, he revealed that he'd once had an exchange with former college and NFL coach and then Fox co-worker Jimmy Johnson that was formative in his decision not to return to the sidelines. Don't go back unless it's in your bones, Johnson told him. Too many of us go back. I was one of them. I went back for the wrong reasons. If you go back for ego, if you go back for money, it's the wrong reason. By that point in his life, Brian Billick had plenty of money. And whether he was at that station or at the bottom rungs of society, we know he'd have plenty of ego to carry him as well. At the end of the day, Billick loved coaching, but he didn't need it. And it was in his media responsibilities that he learned how much he loved football, whether he was coaching it or not. For some guys, this proves to be the best route to take, and it was in it that a man who once thrived on chaos found a bit of balance and peace to carry him into a new life. It was also in these media responsibilities that he reconnected with the Ravens organization itself, where he'd sit in on the preseason broadcast booth and offer up the typical host of opinions he had on offer about the team he had once coached. And thankfully for all parties involved, the sustained connection between Brian and the organization didn't end there. Ahead of the 2019 season, when announcing that Haloti Nada would officially be inducted into the Ravens' Ring of Honor after his stellar career had come to an end, a beaming Steve Bashotti addressed Nada in a word of thanks at a press conference at the castle. And sitting next to Nada was his old head coach, the very same man that Bashotti had gotten into screaming matches with and seen hell or high water along the side of before firing back in 2007. It was there and then that he showed Brian Billick the ultimate sign of respect for all that he'd done for the Ravens franchise by making him a Ring of Honor member as well. This is the first year hearing it. This is not the first Brian is. I talked to Brian a few months ago and, um, and told him how honored we would be and how lucky we are as an organization to have had. I wasn't here with Ted. I was here with Brian and, uh, and John and that continuity and the fact that you stayed in town became such a great friend of John's says so much about you and your family and that you continue to share in this and I'm glad you stayed um, it's meant a lot to us and um, hello do you know why at our age we got to get him in okay I got I I would love to put you in this year but we would feel terrible if something happened right, <laughs> You're right. You know, I just turned 65 so yeah you, you can wait your time. yeah wait your turn but uh, we will we are thrilled to know that you're gonna be coming back for games um, uh, I love it when the, when the uh, retired players come. A lot of them end up staying the game with me and my suite. And uh, we've had, I had Matt Burke last year and Eden and, and Ray are there a lot. And Jacoby was in last year. There's a bunch of players. And that kind of family environment is what we've strived for and what you all built for us. It's our job to respect the legacy that you all built and to be the kind of team that you're proud to come back to. So thank you and thank you. We'll thank see you this fall. We'll do it. Okay? We'll do it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just, for my part, when Steve called, I just can't tell you how uh, 
humbled I am. And, and, and for Kim and I coming up, we were talking about it. It's 20 years that we've been, uh, that when Art and Pat and Ozzy and David brought us in. And, and in coaching years, it's like dog years. I mean, you got to multiply it. And, and for us to have been here and for, for the organization to, to do that and reach out, it means a great deal to us. It really does. Um, to be a part of the organization back then, to know that it's going to be a permanent fixture means a great deal to me. Obviously, we have stayed here at his home. And, and for John, John has been incredibly gracious to allow me to kind of hang around. You know, and that's not an easy thing to do. I've loved doing the preseason games with my broadcast partner, Jerry Sandusky, the best in the business. And I'm excited about seeing the next iteration and the next evolution in this organization that happens. As Steve said, it goes it goes on and on. But uh, Kim and I are thrilled to death to to be a part of it and just so humbled and appreciative of the fact that uh, we're going to be allowed that. And like you with your sons, my grandsons. They don't know pop, but Illick is quick to refer to John, speaking of the man who would replace him as the Ravens head coach in the opening months of 2008 and John Harbaugh. On his hiring day, the then 45-year-old arrived at the facility in Owings Mills in a dark suit with a darker head of hair and his young daughter cradled in his arm as he and his wife entered the building with a camera crew following them. He had an air of light, easygoing confidence about him, a man that seemed self-assured in his excitement that he was on the brink of building something great, rather than apprehensive about stepping into the large shoes left by Billick. With many of the holdovers from his predecessor's glory days, be it Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, Terrell Suggs, Haloti Nada, or others, Harbaugh would go on to carve out a legacy of his own, one that still continues to this day. He won a Super Bowl of his own in 2012, riding the red-hot arm of the quarterback the franchise had picked in the first round to open his regime of the 08 draft. A few weeks before Joe Flacco would become a Baltimore Raven, Steve McNair held a press conference at the team's facility to announce he was retiring from the game. With Harbaugh and Ozzie Newsom flanking him, the veteran tried his best to hold his feelings back on what was clearly an emotionally charged day for him when addressing the media. 13 years from Houston to Memphis to Nashville, now in Baltimore. It's been a long road. But, you know, I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate to surround myself with great people, great coaches, great teammates, you know, great family. And when you have that support, you know, you can almost overcome everything in life. The way I play the game, the way I approach the game, the love I have for the game, I wouldn't change that. I played the game with a lot of passion. I played the game with a lot of heart. And it showed over the course of my 13 years. Over 13 years, I had a lot of injuries because I played the game physical, because I gave it 110% every game, regardless if we was up by 30 or if we was down by 30. There was always that opportunity that I feel like, you know, me and my teammates and the coaching staff and organization can make things happen. It's always, I always believe, regardless of what situation we was in. Over the course of my career, it's been, it's been ups and downs, in which I learned from the good and I learned from the bad. But coming out making this decision, it was a very difficult decision. It was hard, you know, when you, when you, especially when you're walking away from the game, and you know, you, in your mind, you feel like you can play, you still can compete. But when you're fighting that battle, you know, from your mind to your body, that those two is not on the same accord. It's not going to work in the National Football League. You know, I didn't do this by myself. This journey. 
was with a lot of people. You know, I like to thank Tennessee, Bud Adams, Coach Fisher, for giving me the opportunity to start my career in 1995. Uh, you know, I played with some great guys. I played with the Bruce Matthews, the Frank Wycheck, the Derek Mason, the Samari Rowe, all those guys. And I'd like to thank those guys for giving me the start. And for Baltimore to make it my last stop, what a great ride. What a great ride. It was a great ride here for these short two years. You talking about family. You talking about respecting each other. The love in this building is unbelievable. I'd like to thank Ozzy for giving me the opportunity to come here. And Steve Bashotti, give me an opportunity to play with some guys that I've been fighting against <laughs> for a long time. And the Ray Lewis, the Chris McAllister, the Ed Reed, and those type guys that made me better. Because you know what? Every given Sunday, those guys was going to go out and give you their all. They're going to compete every snap. And for me to be here, it's a blessing. Like I said, I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate to be a part of this organization, to finish my long legacy here. And I'd like to thank the fans in Tennessee, also the fans here in Baltimore. It's been, it's been a great ride. It's been a blessing for me to be a part here. And it's, 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 you know, it's sad, a day for me, a very emotional day for me. I'm trying to do the best I can to hold it in. But at the same time, I'm opening up a lot of more doors for the future I got ahead. I can become now the father that I need to be to my kids. I can see them grow up. I can do the things that I want to do personally in life that I couldn't do during the, season of, uh, during the football season. And family is, is very important to me. And now I can now relate of how well that my family understood what I, when, when I was playing the game for 13 years. You know, sometimes you take things for granted. And you don't live, and you just live and just live. But now that you look back of how many times that, you know, I left home, kids were asleep. And you come home, the kids still sleep. You know, and and it's, it's a blessing that now that I'm fortunate to walk away in this game, you know, on my own two feet. And to realize that family is very important. And being away from my family for two years, yeah, it hurt it, but they knew I had a job to do. But now it's the time for me to, to regain the comfort I had with my family before I started the National Football League. Thank you. God bless you. The next and final two years of Steve McNair's life were about making up for lost time. He'd use these moments to go back to Tennessee, try and become closer to his children, and readjust to civilian life after giving so much of what he had mentally and physically to our modern gladiator sport. Whether it was the result of that toll taken on him or other factors, Steve McNair didn't always behave like the perfect man. Like all of us, he had his flaws, and they became apparent to the world after his sad and shocking death on July 4th, 2009. In what was ruled a murder-suicide perpetrated by his mistress, Steve was found dead on his couch by a few friends at age 36, leaving behind a wife and four children who were just beginning to know a version of McNair that didn't live a life dominated by football. For an NFL world that had known McNair as a warrior, the consummate professional and teammate who would get back up no matter how hard he was hit, the idea that Steve was gone was a shock to the system. This was reflected in the statement Ozzie Newsom released on behalf of the Ravens organization in the wake of it all. 
This is so, so sad. We immediately think of his family, his boys. They are all in our thoughts and prayers. What we admired most about Steve when he played against him was his competitive spirit, and we were lucky enough to have that with us for two years. He is one of the best players in the NFL over the last 20 years. In coming to Baltimore and joining forces with the Ravens to try and win a ring with the team who was ready-made to do so, Steve never did achieve his ultimate goal of winning a Super Bowl. But while the 2006 Baltimore Ravens objectively failed at what they were trying to do, the life and career of Steve McNair is anything but a failure. Speaking at Steve's funeral service, Ray Lewis highlighted the type of impact that he made on his teammates, his competitors, and what it meant for those he left behind. Steve McNair, even through competition, I became a friend through fury, a man that I fought against daily, day in and day out, trying to figure out that it was not about technique against him. No matter how much film you watch, film was not going to help you beat this man. You had to be built a certain way. You had to be built of will and heart and sacrifice and dedication. This is what this man left his four kings. He left a legacy the same way when Jesus left because he had the sacrifice of all of us. Y'all father put out one heck of a sacrifice, young men. Every time y'all walk out the door, hold your head up high because he left something that a lot of men can't follow. The example McNair said of resiliency, dedication to a craft, and overcoming in the face of trials, both physical and mental, wasn't just something that his family could draw from, but the fraternity of NFL players he belonged to as well. Specifically, McNair was one of the pioneers of normalizing a higher pedigree for and more respect for the African-American starting quarterback writ large. In 1995, he'd been the highest ever black quarterback selected in the NFL draft when he'd been picked third overall by the Oilers. In the years immediately following, we'd see Donovan McNabb go second overall to the Eagles in 1999, Michael Vick be the first overall pick to the Falcons two years later, and Byron Leflich at seventh to the Jaguars in 2003. This was just the beginning of a diversity movement at the position that was continued with players like Jason Campbell, Vince Young, and Jamarcus Russell, and is now in full swing after great careers from guys like Cam Newton and Russell Wilson, in turn inspired a generation now headlined by Dak Prescott, Patrick Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Kyler Murray, Jalen Hurts, and Justin Fields. In Super Bowl 57, Mahomes and Hurts became the first ever pair of black quarterbacks to face off against one another in a Super Bowl, showcasing a new offensive height for the sport in a wildly exciting offensive showdown. Just a few months later, Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud went 1-2 and two in the draft to Carolina and Houston. Almost 20 years after Steve going third overall was a historical footnote, there was little mention of the race of these two prospects in mainstream circles. African-American quarterbacks still face extra scrutiny and stigma to this day, but the more and more they continue to persevere in the face of it and succeed in spite of it all, the more likely it is that these ugly biases will erode over the course of time. And it's because Steve had taken the torch from guys like Doug Williams and Warren Moon and handed it off to a more robust generation in McNabb, Vic, Leftwich, and Young that a current generation of kids will look up to today's diverse offering of what was once a prohibitively white position and believe that they themselves can do it when they grow up. Super Bowl ring or not, that's a very successful legacy indeed. Speaking of a successful legacy, the face of the old guard and Ray Lewis ensured his by sticking out the final years of his career under a new John Harbaugh-led regime. The outspoken superstar battled injuries as his career was coming to an end, and he had some issues adjusting to life under Harbaugh in the early years. But it would all prove worth it as he hoisted a second Lombardi trophy after a successful all-or-nothing goal line stand that was emblematic of his career. It's no greater way as a champ to go out on your last ride with the men that I went out with, with my teammates, and you looked around this stadium, and Baltimore... 
Baltimore. We coming home, baby. We did it. His impact on the franchise is immeasurable. What with the confidence he instilled in his teammates, the enthusiasm he injected into the fan base, and the longevity he'd carry over a 17-year career in purple and black. Of his former compadres in the old guard, he was the lucky one in this sense. In June of 2008, not long after Billick had been ousted for Harbaugh, Jonathan Ogden announced his retirement from professional football. He knew that a turf toe injury he'd been suffering long term would limit his ability to continue to play at a high level and chose to bow out on his own terms. He wouldn't go on to get a second ring like his draft classmate did, but a few months after the Ravens won Super Bowl 47, Ogden was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. First of all, I want to thank you, Ozzy, for that fantastic introduction. You know, I've often thought about that day back in uh, 1996 when you drafted me instead of Lawrence Phillips. You know what, buddy? I think that worked out well for everybody. <laughs> no, but I'm very grateful to you and happy to have been in Baltimore with you for all these years. To Steve Bashotti, I especially want to thank you for continuing on with that fantastic legacy and being a fantastic owner and leader of one of the greatest organizations in the history of the NFL, 2013 Super Bowl champion Baltimore Ravens. Thank you for allowing me to continue to be a part of the organization after retiring and awarding me with the 2013 Super Bowl ring. To Ray Lewis and to Ed Reed, both of whom will be here five years for you and whenever Ed retires. What tremendous times we had playing with and for one another. I know many of you are here and I want to thank you guys for being such great friends. I just really want to thank the fans and the city of Baltimore. I mean, when I, when I came to the Ravens, when I came to Baltimore in 1996, we had no team, we had no history. We had, didn't even have team colors. We just had a name. I can remember at the draft, I had that black jacket with the white letters that said Baltimore Ravens and the white hat with the black letters that said Baltimore Ravens. <laughs> and, and in the back of my mind, I was saying, I don't really know where we're going with this right now. But, uh, but Ozzy, who just drafted me, assured me, said, our goal is to make a winner here. And I told him, I want to be a part of that. You know? And, and when we got there, those first few years at Memorial Stadium, the Ravens were new to everybody. It was a new team, and we were new to the city. We were all rookies together. I watched us grow, myself as a player, and the fans as an NFL city, from infancy to one of, if not the best, football towns in the National Football League. With undoubtedly the best and most passionate fans that I have ever seen, and I want to thank you guys for being there. It was for you who, at the end of the day, I enjoyed performing. And you guys are the reason we could go out there every Sunday and lay it all on the line. Because we knew that you appreciated everything that we did. And you appreciated everything that I did. I am so very proud to have been the Baltimore Ravens' first ever draft choice. And I am so humbled to be the Baltimore Ravens' first ever Hall of After introducing his first ever draft pick, Ozzie Newsom watched on as Ogden honored him and what he built from scratch, no doubt thinking back on what an amazing ride it had been. While not all members of the old guard he'd assembled had been lucky enough to win another Super Bowl or make the Hall of Fame, Adelius Thomas and Jamal Lewis retired after the 09 season following stints with other teams as a few examples, he no doubt felt grateful for the ride, as Ogden had been alluding to. In another five years, Ozzy would step down from the role as general manager, ceding it to his right-hand man, Eric DaCosta. 
though not before hitting one last home run in the first round of the draft, snagging Louisville's Lamar Jackson to replace a by then ailing Joe Flacco. The young quarterback's career is off to a potential Hall of Fame trajectory in its own right, and a new era of Ravens football that's currently in full bore started with that master stroke from Ozzy. Jackson is currently seeking a Super Bowl victory of his own to validate all the success he's had thus far, similar to McNair at the height of his powers, and like the members of Ozzy's new guard of players who've been drafted post-Super Bowl 35. Todd Heap was released by the Ravens following the 2010 season, after years of injuries had taken their toll on the one legitimate aerial weapon that Newsom had drafted in his career. He held on with the Arizona Cardinals for two seasons, before retiring in 2013 and also getting involved in broadcasting with the Ravens media team in the years following. It was a similar story for Derek Mason, whose age caught up to him and saw his release by Baltimore at the same time as Heap. He'd retire a year later, doing so as a member of the Baltimore Ravens organization, in a sign of respect for the franchise that had slowly earned it through the early Bashadi years. A few months later, the Ravens would go on to win Super Bowl 47 with Terrell Suggs, Aloni Nana, Sam Cooke, and Ed Reed, finally becoming the champions they'd envisioned themselves as. If anyone struggled to acclimate to life under John Harbaugh, Reed was the poster child, with his mercurial personality leading to more than one run-in with the at-the-time hard-headed young coach. This included what was described as a mutiny during that Super Bowl season, in which Reed and a cabal of other players openly questioned their coach during the regular season. But as Denny Green once told Brian Billick, winning fixes everything, and a few tweaks to the coaching staff and roster, plus an insane playoff run from Joe Flacco, had Reed and his teammates standing on the dais as Super Bowl champions at long last. Of the new guard of players, the only Hall of Fame inductee thus far is Reed, who appeared in front of the crowd as a first ballot selection in an outfit for the ages and thanked the organization which had given him the stage to show his immense talents to the world. Like Baltimore! No place like Baltimore, baby. I like to thank that organization, Steve Bashadi, Ozzie Newsom. Coach Harbs, his staff, too many people to mention. I know I'm gonna miss some people, man, but I love all y'all guys, man. Thank you for your support over the years. Even now, I know we didn't had a lot of conversations, Steve and I, Ozzy and I, man, we had a lot of little bumps and bruises. <laughs> Coach Harbs, my guy. That man there, man, he came in with a plan, and we executed it, coach. I ain't sharp as One day soon, Suggs may join him, which would be a remarkable capstone to Ozzie Newsom's legendary run as the Ravens' general manager. In fact, it's likely that Newsom would enter the Hall of Fame in that role if he weren't already in it as a tight end. The building of two different championship teams 12 years apart within the same organization is an incredible accomplishment and really only surface level signifiers of all the hard work Ozzy put in to showcase his amazing eye for talent. The 2006 team had a good chance to join the other two as the third testament to this amazing body of work, but as often happens in sports, a few bad breaks can derail an entire day. And the fact that all of the hard work and physical and mental anguish that these men go through comes down to one day is as gut-wrenching for the losers as it is rewarding for the winners. After years of disappointment against the immense expectations he faced, Peyton Manning was happy to take things one day, one game, one quarter, one series, one pass at a time. In doing so, he ceded control of the flow of games to the rest of his immensely talented roster that remarkably was able to flip a switch and begin to play up to their potential as the postseason kicked off in 06. 
They would just barely edge out their rival Patriots in a nail-biting 38-34 home victory in the AFC Championship game, and then go on to win Super Bowl 41 over the Chicago Bears in a tight game that Indy mostly had control over. Manning took home the Knights MVP award, completing 25 of 38 passes for 247 yards, one touchdown, and one interception. Despite this, Joseph Adai and the Colts defense had strong performances in the game, and a three-field goal performance by Adam Vinatieri made it a true team effort. That the Colts had gone from a high-flying pass-first outlet to a ground-and-pound defensive squad in time to make an unexpected Super Bowl run was ironic for many reasons, namely that they had Manning at quarterback, and also that we were on the eve of a passing boom that players like Manning and Tom Brady had already ignited. It was an interesting watch from afar for the members of the 2006 Ravens, because it was in this fashion that they had hoped to go on and do exactly what Indianapolis did. True, Manning still had a few more gears he could reach than McNair by that point, and Indy's offensive weapons, particularly at receiver, widened their margin for error a bit. But the facts are that the 06 Ravens lost to a team that would use their ideal formula to go on and win the whole damn thing. For Brian Billick and Ozzie Newsom, the old guard of players they drafted and developed, Steve Bishotti, who presided over all of them, and of course, Steve McNair and the new guard who wanted that first ever ring for validation, this was devastating. But sometimes in life, even when we think things are going well as they possibly can, we hit bumps in the road. And for all the involved parties, some of whom would go on to win the Super Bowl in 2012, try to make a go of it elsewhere in the league, or to write a new chapter in their story post-football, one thing was held in common. They soldiered on because they had to. Sometimes the most promising seasons can turn out to be nothing more than just another season in between. But that disappointment will never erase your past accomplishments, which no one can take away from you. And as long as you're still willing to stay in the fight and continue to forge on, you can always ensure that it was simply a bump in the road. Championship ring or not, that's a lesson in defining success that we can take away from this incredible group of men who should hold their heads high in pride of all that they achieved. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, be sure to get at me on Twitter at jkluke to discuss and to check out the exit52podcast.com for companion blogs for each episode. Mm-hmm.